Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 46. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And in this episode, even though America's eyes are focused on New Hampshire and looking back at Iowa and looking forward to Nevada and South Carolina, we're on the road again. And in this episode, we're going west to the Golden State. Yes. Hello from Hollywood, my friends. Yes, it's cold in New Hampshire, still frozen in Iowa, heating up in South Carolina, and blazing hot in Nevada. But here in California, at least in L.A., it's almost always sunny and warm. And especially if you're the team from the movie Parasite, or if your team is the Lakers or the Clippers, or if you're a Chargers fan, hoping you might actually land Tom Brady as your QB next season. Or if you're Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, who just bought David Geffen's Benedict Canyon home for $165 million, setting a new record for Los Angeles. It's sunny and warm for lots of folks in La La Land, especially the week after the Oscars, where there's a good chance Bong Joon-ho, the director of Parasite, might still be in town drunk somewhere right now. But even when you're in the state of sunshine and Hollywood smiles, basking in the afterglow of the Oscars, avoiding the smog and absorbing the cloud of cannabis smoke that's constant, and even when you can see the Pacific Ocean and you're thousands of miles away from Donald Trump, even with all that, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, dude. When you look at Vindman's, uh, the person he reports to, said horrible things, avoided the chain of command, leaked, uh, did a lot of bad things. And so we sent him on his way to a much different location, and uh, the military can handle him any way they want. Uh, General Milley has him now. I congratulate General Milley. Uh, he can have him. Uh, but uh, And his brother also. So we'll, we'll find out what happened. I mean, we'll find out. But he reported uh, very inaccurate things. So... Trump says the military should look into disciplinary action against Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who gave heroic testimony in the impeachment hearings about the president. Now, if he ever served himself, Trump might understand that that's not how it's supposed to work. This is not his military. It's America's military. And these attacks on Army Lieutenant Colonel Vindman are an attack on everyone who wears the uniform. Steve Vladek an outstanding law professor at the University of Texas, noted on Twitter, no provision in the Uniform Code of Military Justice subjects a service member to discipline for complying with a congressional subpoena. There is, however, a statute in the Uniform Code of Military Justice protecting a service member's right to communicate with Congress and barring retaliation. So Vindman's done nothing wrong. Trump's the one who's done something wrong. Everyone here in Hollywood is an actor. But our president, he's also an actor. A bad actor. But Lieutenant Colonel Vindman is a hero. He's not an actor. He's the real deal. If you are what you say you are A superstar Then have no fear The camera's here Yeah, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman is a superstar. Not the kind that's so often celebrated here in Hollywood. But the real deal. He immigrated here as a young child. He made something of himself. He was wounded and awarded a Purple Heart in Iraq. 
And time and time again, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman stood up for his country. Someone in this town is probably already writing a screenplay about it. Vindman is a true hero. And what Trump did, what President Mayhem did, was ugly. And there's an old saying that Washington is Hollywood for ugly people. Well, some people in Washington are really ugly, like Trump. And it's because of stuff like that. There's no hiding from it. Our president is not a Hollywood bombshell. He's not a glamorous Marilyn Monroe. He's not a striking Charlize Theron. He's not a dashing Denzel Washington or a handsome Brad Pitt. He's a movie monster of the ugliest type. He's not the guy to clean up the swamp. He's the swamp thing. And every week, he gives us new reason to be angry. And there's lots to get into in this episode, including my very special conversation with one of the most dynamic guests we've had on this show yet, Jameel Smith. He's a true superstar. He's currently a senior writer for Rolling Stone, and his provocative newest piece is titled The Mike Bloomberg Black Voters Know. Jameel is a reporter, an activist, a storyteller, a social and political critic, and an incredibly important and rising voice on politics, culture, race, sports, and much more. We sat down here in Hollywood to rip through all of it, fresh off the New Hampshire primary with all the news of the world unfolding in the middle of Black History Month with race and our racist president at the center of all of it. It's a fascinating conversation that explores some of the reasons why so many in this country are angry with good reason. We'll also talk about football, beer, and why Bernie Sanders can't win. And I got a very timely action segment that'll inspire you to turn your anger into positive impact. We've got some news about upcoming shows, events, and a recap of the New York Fire Department versus Chicago Police Department charity hockey game that we sponsored and many of you listening help support. But first, we're in the town of stars, and this is an episode about stars. Some in this town, here in Hollywood, they're not stars. They're wannabes. They're just people playing parts, like our president. I wish I could escape. And here's the headline on the marquee of the theater. There's more reason to be angry. The number of troops who have traumatic brain injury after the January rocket attack in Iraq by the Iranians just keeps going up. Like a box office hit in Hollywood, the numbers just keep going up. Again, yes, again. Every time I record a new episode, the number is higher. Now, it's up to 109. Last episode, it was 64. It just keeps going up. It almost doubled since the last episode, and that's up 50 from the week before. We've covered this at length in the show and in the last episode, and I keep saying it. If you're not angry about this, you're not paying attention. Despite what the president says, these types of brain injuries can range from mild to severe. Symptoms of mild injuries include headaches, dizziness, and confusion, which is pretty much Trump every day. For moderate to severe brain injury, symptoms can include severe headaches, a lack of coordination, slurred speech, and seizures. Severe cases can result in death. There were 56,800 traumatic brain injury deaths in the United States in 2014, according to the CDC. Trump previously dismissed the injuries as, quote, not very serious, prompting leading veterans groups to demand an apology. But they haven't gotten it. Nope not from President Mayhem. Instead, they got the opposite. 
Here's an interview from Fox Business where he actually doubled down. When they said nobody was hurt, nobody was, because I saw the missiles, we saw them going. They had 16 and 12 landed, and they landed in a way that they didn't hit anybody. And so when they came in and told me that nobody was killed, I was impressed by that. And, you know, I stopped something that would have been very devastating for them. And uh, then a couple of weeks later, I started hearing about people uh, having to do with trauma, head trauma, and that that exists. But uh, it's, uh, you know, I viewed it a little bit differently than most, and I won't be changing my mind on that. So he won't be changing his mind on that. What the hell is wrong with this guy? Really? He can't even admit he's wrong about this? I think he has a brain injury. Brain injuries are not just headaches, but this entire debacle is giving America a headache. And this issue is either one of two things. Either it's incompetence or it's a cover-up, and it's headache-inducing for sure. But people come out to California for the dream, the California dream of sunshine and fresh air. There's something out here they don't come for. And since I'm in L.A. this week, it's an issue I've shared in the past that has me angry, has others angry, and should or soon will have everyone angry. If you've been to L.A. lately, you know what you'll see everywhere? Scooters. Electric scooters. If you're new to the show and you want to fully understand the scope of this menace, the gremlins of public transportation, go back and listen to episode five. It's the one where I break down the scourge of scooters. It's the one with Sarah Jessica Parker. But electric scooters continue to expand and infest American cities with the quickness. I don't see too many folks wearing medical masks out here. No signs of the coronavirus, except for the fact that the military has three sites in the state that are set up to quarantine folks. But scooters, electric scooters, are everywhere. They just dumped all over the place, left and right. They're dangerous not just for the potential to get a traumatic brain injury while riding them, but you can get one by tripping over them. They're everywhere. They're like rats in New York City or taco trucks in Austin. Now, I hear the great Larry David has actually answered our call. He, too, understands the menace that is electric scooters. Now, Larry David is one of the ultimate angry Americans, so I invite him to join us on this show anytime. If you got a scooter story to tell, use the hashtag ScootersSuck and let me know. That includes Larry David. If you don't like Larry David or his fantastic segments in the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is one of the best shows ever, don't worry. Larry David has a message for you, especially if you have a problem with his segments on the MAGA hats. Here it is. Alienate yourselves. Yeah. Go. Go and alienate. You have my blessing. No, I could give a fuck. (laughs) If you don't know Larry David, he plays Bernie Sanders on Saturday Night Live. And he created Seinfeld with Jerry Seinfeld. And he was the writer there for many years. He did that show, of course, with our friend Jason Alexander, a man who spends a great deal of time here in Hollywood. Now, that's been one of our most popular episodes ever. If you haven't heard it, go back and check out episode 38 with Jason Alexander. It's really amazing. And you get to hear who Jason might endorse for president. Because here in Hollywood and nationwide, it's celebrity endorsement season. And like Seinfeld, the race for president seems to be going on and on forever, somewhere with no end in sight, because the 2020 race rolls on. 
The big news, of course, is that New Hampshire is in the books. And Bernie Sanders is victorious. Bernie Sanders came in first with 25.7% of the vote and nine delegates. Pete Buttigieg was in a very close second, Amy Klobuchar in third, Elizabeth Warren in fourth, and Joe Biden in fifth. After that, Tom Steyer, Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, and everyone else rounded out the pack. But the big news, of course, is that Bernie Sanders won very closely. Pete Buttigieg right behind him. 25.7% for Bernie Sanders, 24.4% for Buttigieg. Amy Klobuchar with an extremely strong showing, doubling the numbers for Elizabeth Warren, who only had 9%, and Joe Biden, who had an amazingly disappointing 8.4%. So the Biden campaign is in trouble. The Klobuchar campaign is surging, and Bernie Sanders has had his best week yet. And we'll see if it lasts. But back in Iowa, it's still a massive mess. So the Associated Press has still not called a winner in the race. Mayor Pete Buttigieg leads Senator Sanders by a margin of 0.09 percentage points. Now, why hasn't the AP called it yet? Because that percentage point is in the count of what's known as state delegate equivalents, which is the outcome of a caucus that the AP uses to declare a winner. Buttigieg has two more state delegate equivalents than Sanders out of 2,152 counted. Those numbers could still change. But the chaos continues to unfold, and the chairman of the Iowa Democratic Party resigned his position as the organization grapples with the fallout of a totally botched caucus process that left the party and the state and the country reeling. The finger pointing is in full swing. Voters in Iowa are angry. Voters in other states are angry. And they're especially angry not only because Iowa was first and not representative of the country, but because they screwed the whole thing up. And in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada... And all across America, maybe more than ever, as the stakes get higher, Democrats continue to eat their own. Yep, Democrats eat their own. That's what they do. They did it on the debate stage in New Hampshire. They're doing it in ads. And that has especially included Biden lately. Here's a new attack ad that he's got taking aim at the moderate who beat his butt in Iowa and in New Hampshire, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Barack Obama called Joe Biden best vice president America's ever had. But Pete Buttigieg doesn't think much of the vice president's record. Let's compare. When President Obama called on him, Joe Biden helped lead the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which gave health care to 20 million people. And when park goers called on Pete Buttigieg, he installed decorative lights under bridges, giving citizens of South Bend colorfully illuminated rivers. Both Vice President Biden and former Mayor Buttigieg have taken on tough fights. Under threat of a nuclear Iran, Joe Biden helped to negotiate the Iran deal. And under threat of disappearing pets, Buttigieg negotiated lighter license regulations on pet chip scanners. Both Vice President Biden and former Mayor Pete have helped shape our economy. Joe Biden helped save the auto industry, which revitalized the economy of the Midwest and led the passage and implementation of the Recovery Act, saving our economy from a depression. Pete Buttigieg revitalized the sidewalks of downtown South Bend by laying out decorative brick. And both Biden and Buttigieg have made hard decisions. Despite pressure from the NRA, Joe Biden passed the assault weapons ban through Congress. Then, he passed the Violence Against Women Act. And even when public pressure mounted against him, former Mayor Pete fired the first African-American police chief of South Bend. And then he forced out the African-American fire chief, too. We're electing a president. What you've done matters. 
it's a strong ad, but also amazing that it's gotten to the point where the former vice president of the United States feels the need to attack the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana. That's a reflection of the state of affairs, folks. Biden's in trouble and Buttigieg is surging. It looks like Buttigieg's machine is gaining steam and Biden's is running out of gas. But as always, Democrats love to eat their own. But sometimes Democrats don't have to eat their own because the candidates will actually shoot themselves in the foot. Trump does it daily. His feet are so shot to shit at this point that they're probably bulletproof. But the same is not true for others, especially not true for Joe Biden, who, like a bad Hollywood actor, just keeps missing his lines and saying stupid or weird shit, which included a whole new one. There have been no caucus? No, you haven't. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. You said you were, but you're, you're, now you got to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. So Joe Biden called a woman in New Hampshire a lying dog-faced pony soldier, which nobody thought was very nice, and everyone across the media was scrambling to understand. It wasn't some variation on malarkey. It wasn't an obscure, Oscar-nominated foreign film title. Apparently, it comes from an old John Wayne movie called The Horse Soldiers. Biden's used this quote a few times over the years, which is also weird, especially since the character who says it in the movie is painted in red face. So this is something from old Hollywood, very old Hollywood. That film with John Wayne was made in 1959. To put that in perspective, that's a full 23 years before Mayor Pete Buttigieg was even born. But one thing is clear at this point, a star is born in Buttigieg. And since we're talking Hollywood, this town is definitely being activated for the 2020 campaign trail for candidates all across the political and geographic map. And that means campaign surrogates. Now, I haven't talked that much about Senator Elizabeth Warren lately, but she's got a ton of them. She's got Jane Fonda, Ashley Judd, Yvette Nicole Brown, and Lance Bass. If you don't know, Lance Bass was in the iconic boy band In Sync with Justin Timberlake, J.C. Chavez, Chris Kirkpatrick, and Joey Fatone. And here's Lance Bass. I am a son of a teacher, which makes me love Elizabeth Warren even more because I love her background as a teacher and her policies on education, which I think is so important. And Lance Bass isn't the only one. Ashley Judd is on the campaign for Senator Elizabeth Warren. She's actually calling donors herself. She's calling people on the phone who support Elizabeth Warren. And here's Ashley Judd. Hi, y'all. I'm Ashley Judd, and I am so proud to support Elizabeth Warren for President of the United States. Elizabeth has a plan for that. And right now, our plan is to make calls to grassroots donors to thank them for chipping in three bucks, five bucks, whatever you can afford, because Elizabeth is the best president money cannot buy. So turn your ringtones up extra loud. You never know. I might be giving you a call. Chip in whatever you can, and I look forward to talking with you. May I please speak to Jennifer? Yeah, thank you. Hi, Jennifer. It's Ashley Judd. Well, I want to thank you so much for your contribution to Senator Warren's campaign for president. It really means a lot. Look, I'm a fan of Ashley Judd. I think she's great. A Time to Kill, Kiss the Girls, Dolphin Tail, all excellent. But personally, I'd much rather get a phone call from Dave Chappelle. Now, I don't think that's going to happen as I'm not giving any money to any of these candidates, but the celebrities just keep on coming. And that includes Michael J. Fox who endorsed Mayor Pete recently. And he even took a shot at Bernie, and a funny one. But here's Michael J. Fox out on the campaign trail. Pete Buttigieg, 
It's, it's fantastic. It's, it's so I, I was watching a debate last night, and it occurred to me, I, I, I love all the, the, the Democratic Democrat nominees, and uh, I think they're all terrific, and I have respect for all of them. Um, but they're all yelling at me. <laughs> and I was sitting there, and I said, why are you yelling at me, Bernie? What did I do to you? <laughs> he said, they're all screaming, but, 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 but Pete isn't screaming. He's just, he's talking to me. And he's the one guy who's just quiet and just making his point. And, and, uh, and it's a point I, I, I agree with on, on almost all issues. And all issues. I can't say what I don't. I just allow for the possibility that he might be, he has to wear purple on Fridays or something. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it, I want to tell a story about uh, the first time I, I, I saw, well, the, the temperament, uh, the, the idea that he can talk to you and not yell at you and get you across. I mean, that's, what, that's the contrast we need to make to Trump, to this insanity. You just have someone there just saying, okay, whatever he just said, here's the thing. Um, and, and, uh, and I think Pete, I know Pete is capable of that. Um. So Hollywood is being mobilized, and that even includes Trump. He has actors like Dean Cain and Christy Swanson and Tucker Carlson. Now, I'm not going to play any video for them because it's not really that impactful. And even worse, it's not entertaining. But if you've been listening to this pod since the summer, you may remember that Miss Swanson did choose to pick a fight with me on Twitter back in July. And then, strangely, again, back in November. Look, in politics, media, and Twitter in 2020, you really never know. You might get a phone call from Ashley Judd. You might get tweeted at by Buffy the Vampire Slayer from the film, not the TV show. Or you might get a butt dial call from Rudy Giuliani. Go back to episode 28 if you weren't around for that incident. But I share the full Rudy butt dial story. And I also have an awesome conversation with Mark Roberge, the lead singer from OAR, a guy who is a celebrity, but not a jerk. And we're buddies, but he never butt dials me. But it would be interesting to see if he and the guys from the band do make an endorsement. So stay tuned. But the celebrities are on the campaign trail for sure. And it's only going to get more intense here in Hollywood and around the country in the days to come. The celebrities are out for sure. But so are some of the candidates including one who would become a bit of a celebrity in his own right. Yes, folks, Andrew Yang is out. Andrew Yang brought candor, even in the end. And he also brought math, even in the end. We have touched and improved millions of lives and moved this country we love so much in the right direction. And while there is great work left to be done, you know, I am the math guy, and it is clear tonight from the numbers that we are not going to win this race. I am not someone who wants to accept donations and support in a race that we will not win. And so tonight, I am announcing I am suspending my campaign for president. I love you, Andrew. Thank you. I love you, too. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much. Endings are hard, New Hampshire, but this is not an ending. This is a beginning. This is just the starting line. This campaign has awakened something fundamental in this country and ourselves. 
This movement has outlasted over a dozen senators, governors, and members of Congress to become the most exciting force in this entire race. The Yang Yang has fundamentally shifted the direction of this country and transformed our politics, and we are only continuing to grow. Andrew Yang will continue to grow, and he'll continue to bring positivity and inspiration and bring new people into politics. Maybe more than any other candidate, Andrew Yang's star rose fast. And more than most others, he's going to continue to rise at the same pace. This is the beginning. So watch Andrew Yang. He might run for something else very soon. Maybe mayor of New York. I've been telling you to watch out for that. But also watch out because another candidate is also out. Former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, is out. That was fast. The announcement came after Patrick got less than 1,300 votes in New Hampshire, which is his neighboring state. Now, he was only in the campaign for about three months, just declaring in November. But he'll be around. If the Democrats win, he'll probably be a member of the cabinet, and you'll be seeing Deval Patrick again. And another candidate is gone, folks. Light up the music. Senator Michael Bennett is also out. Man, that music's getting a lot of use this week, and we're not done yet. But the Colorado Democrat, Michael Bennett, tried to break in to moderate voters in the party's 2020 primary, but he never registered on the polls, and he was unable to make any of the Democratic debates after the initial two. He was a moderate, and you probably forgot he was even running. He never really polled above 1% and often got confused with the other poorly polling white guy moderate John Delaney who dropped out last week. But there's still one more reason to play the music. You probably totally forgot about this one too. Republican candidate for president, Joe Walsh, is also out. The controversial former radio talk show host and Illinois congressman, is out. Now, this is the guy back in 2016 who talked about Obama hating Israel because he was secretly a Muslim. So Walsh had all kinds of problems. But sometimes, amazingly, he made sense. And that was true, especially at the end, when Joe Walsh went out swinging. I am ending my candidacy for president of the United States. Look, I got into this because I thought it was really important that there was a Republican, a Republican out there every day calling out this president for how unfit he is. I want to stop Trump. I believe he's a threat to this country. He can't be stopped within the Republican Party. Nobody can beat him. It's Trump's party, John. It's not a party. It's a cult. He can't be beat in the Republican primary. So there's no reason for me or any candidate really to be in there. The party has become a cult. You thought there was some kind of an opportunity where you could convince Republicans in these states. What changed? I, I didn't see how cult-like the party was. I mean, 10, 10 states around the country canceled their primaries and caucuses. The state parties are beholden to Trump. The conservative media world, Fox News and all the rest, wouldn't give me the time of day. I'm a Republican candidate for Congress, or for president, but they bow down in front of their king. And then out there every day, John, talking to Republican voters, I just became convinced that these folks have been fed nothing but lies and myths truths about President Trump, and they can't be gotten back. Now, Joe Walsh says the GOP is a cult, 
and Trump voters can't be gotten back. But the Dems will try. Are they going to try to at least outnumber the cult with voters of their own? And that fight rolls into another battleground, a place with lights that are actually brighter than the lights here in Hollywood, bright enough to be even seen from space. Bright light said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care. And I'm just a devil with love to spare. So Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. That's right. Vegas, baby. The ninth Democratic debate will happen Wednesday, February 19th in Las Vegas. Eight Democratic candidates remain in the presidential race, but so far, only five have qualified for that next debate in Las Vegas. Now, to score an invite to that debate, candidates have to either receive 12% of voter support in two polls in Nevada or South Carolina or receive 10% in the four polls that are national from Nevada or South Carolina. Candidates who received at least one delegate in Iowa or New Hampshire also qualify. So that means only five have qualified so far, and they are Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar. And now with Andrew Yang gone, the Democrats are back to a 100% white candidate-only debate. But it ain't over yet. Things are changing quickly. The DNC has removed the donor threshold rule for the next debate. So former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg may appear on a debate stage soon. His campaign said he will not accept political donations of any kind, which stopped him from reaching the donor threshold required for previous debates. Now, all he needs is one more state or national poll that puts him at 10%. Now, this change, in my view, is not just better for Bloomberg, it's better for American politics. Fundraising is the wrong metric to emphasize when it comes to evaluating and incentivizing leaders. But I continue to believe that Bloomberg is a net positive on the landscape to beat Trump. Here's how I look at it. In politics, billionaires are like nukes. You may not like them, but they're powerful. And you probably want them, especially if other people have them. And you definitely don't want your enemy or your opponent to have more of them than you do. So everyone who's shitting on Bloomberg, how would you feel tomorrow if you woke up and he went to the other side? That's what people need to think about. And since the next debate is in Vegas, my money's on Bloomberg making it and on him making a run. I've been telling you for months, Bloomberg is coming. And it's time for him to make a move. The Democratic field for a long time has been jammed up like L.A. traffic on the 405. But Bloomberg's paid for the easy pass. Or he just hired his own private chopper. And he's about to fly past Andrew Yang, Tom Steyer, Tulsi Gabbard, and maybe Joe Biden and all the others to land firmly in your living room for the next debate. And in that living room, it'll be hosted again by MSNBC and NBC. NBC's third time hosting the debate in this election cycle. And here are the stars of your show. The moderators will be NBC Nightly News anchor Lester Holt, Meet the Press moderator Chuck Todd, NBC Chief White House Correspondent Haley Jackson, Noticias Telemundo Senior Correspondent Vanessa Hauk, and John Ralston of the Nevada Independent. But no Rachel Maddow. If you want more Maddow, go back and download episode seven of this podcast. She was one of our first guests. We broke things down. We predicted the future and we talked about fishing. And coming up, we'll also get into that with Jamil Smith, who worked with Rachel Maddow as a producer on our show over the course of a long career in media. But the debate in Vegas is coming and it'll be at the Paris Theater. So if you want to make the trip out to Vegas, 
right after that Democratic debate on the same stage at the Paris Theater, they'll have Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons for three nights. Then, Riverdance 25 hits the stage for five days in a row. And after that, the candidates will Riverdance on down to the 10th debate on February 25th in South Carolina, and then on to Super Tuesday on March 3rd. And after that, in case you're wondering, there are more primaries. Bunches of them, from Michigan with 125 delegates, to Florida with 219 delegates, to Georgia with 105, to New York in late April with 274 delegates, which might be the last big one. That all leads us all the way up to the Democratic Convention, which will be on July 13th in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Actually, it's pronounced Milwaukee, which is Algonquin for the good land. I was not aware of that. I think one of the most interesting aspects of Milwaukee is the fact that it's the only major American city to have ever elected three socialist mayors. Thank you, Alice Cooper. I'm sure Bernie Sanders fans will find that particularly interesting. And the excitement will continue all summer long as the Republicans will have their convention to formally nominate Donald Trump starting on August 24th in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yes, I'm They'll be going to Carolina. They'll be headed to the Queen City, one of the fastest growing cities in America, the home of NASCAR, the Carolina Panthers, and the 90s hairband Firehouse. Yep, Charlotte will be the place, the place that the GOP solidifies its twisted relationship with the love of its lifetime, Donald Trump. And then, September, there is scheduled to be the first of three presidential debates, Trump versus the candidate to be named later, and two more in October, and one for the VP candidates. And that's when the fun will really begin. There's still a long way to go. Lots of time for the Democrats to eat their own, for Trump to replace Pence, or for who knows what to happen. But don't spend all your emotional energy just yet. We got a very long road ahead on the path to the White House. And that road to the White House will come through here in California in just about a month. March 3rd is the primary day in California. But last week was the Oscars, and it was a historic one. Parasite was the inspiring upset surprise winner for Best Picture and more. And I'm sorry, I think 1917 was robbed on that one, but the Academy loves a great story about a film more than it loves a great film. 1917 did appropriately win 13 Oscars, and I would tell you to consider it your civic duty to go out and see that World War I epic. Also at the Oscars, Joaquin Phoenix was amazing in Joker, Eminem made a surprise appearance and performed Lose Yourself, and it was a year of powerful stories. One with politics, but less than we probably would have expected. Trump was rarely mentioned at all, maybe only once. But the messages on issues were out there. But more than usual, and more than anything, there were messages about leadership, and about example, and about positivity. Now, in my view, I don't want Hollywood to be disconnected. Movies are about art, and art is about stories, and the good ones are about issues. And we got no shortage of issues here in 2020. 
And the Oscars started out hot with Brad Pitt, who won for Best Actor for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, Pitt's a guy who's always been involved in causes, and he's always been good at using just a few charming words to land an impact. And his acceptance speech for his first ever Oscar for acting was no exception. Thank you. This is incredible. Really incredible. Thank you to the Academy for this honor of honors. They told me I only have 45 seconds up here, which is 45 seconds more than the Senate gave John Bolton this week. I'm thinking maybe Quentin does a movie about it, and in the end, the adults do the right thing. But it was about more than politics. It was about the power of chasing your dream, whatever that is, and seeing it go all the way in a way that can really only happen in Hollywood and only here in America. I'm a big gobsmacked. I'm not, I'm not one to look back, but this has made me do so. And I, I think of my folks taking me to the drive-in to see Butch and Sundance and loading up my car and moving out here and Gina and Ridley giving me my first shot to all the wonderful people I've met along the way to stand here now. Once upon a time in Hollywood, I think that's the truth. This is for my kids who color everything I do. I adore you. Thank you. It's a message for his kids and for all kids. And there were a number of messages like that. Renee Zellweger won for Best Actress for her role as Judy Garland in Judy. And she had a powerful and inspiring message about heroes and about the power that they can have, especially in times like this. Our heroes unite us. Now, uh the best among us who inspire us to find the best in ourselves. Um, you know, when they unite us, when, when we look to our heroes, we agree, you know, um, and that matters. Uh, Neil Armstrong, Sally Ride, uh, Dolores Fuerta, um, Venus and Serena and Selena, uh, Bob Dylan, Scorsese, uh, Fred Rogers, Harriet Tubman, we agree on our teachers, and we agree on our courageous uh, men and women in uniform who serve. We agree on our first responders and firefighters. Um, when we celebrate our heroes, we, um, you know, we're reminded of who we are uh, as one people, united. United. Indeed. Well said, Miss Elwiger. And also well said, another powerful message from the winner for Best Actor for his role in Joker, Joaquin Phoenix. He shared a quote from his brother, River, who died at only 23 years old back in 1993. When he was 17, my brother wrote this lyric. He said, run to the rescue with love and peace will follow. Thank you. Run to the rescue and peace will follow. It's kind of like look for the helpers. They're out there running to the rescue every day in America. And most of the time, far from the spotlights of Hollywood. But they're out there, just like our guest in this episode. Hollywood is the land of stars, and Jameel Smith is a star. One that's shining brightly, and brighter by the day. Jameel Smith grew up in Cleveland and went to Shaker Heights High, where he wrote for the student newspaper, and was on the wrestling and track teams and in the school's Minority Achievement Community Program, where black upperclassmen with high grade point averages mentor black freshmen and sophomore boys with lower GPAs. But from the beginning, Jameel Smith was involved in his community and in the news surrounding it, 
He went to college in the Ivy League at Penn, where he also wrote for the school paper and was involved in causes, and then to King's College in London. After finishing his education, Jamil started out working in Hollywood here for the talent agency William Morris, and he'll share a very cool story about that later. He also worked at CNN, where he produced a series called 9-11, It Changed My Life. He went on HBO Sports, then NFL Films, where he worked with the great Steve Sable, who he'll also share a story about. That's also where he earned three sports Emmys, two for Inside the NFL and another for the Cincinnati Bengals installment of the Hard Knocks series. Now, Hard Knocks is one of my single favorite shows of all time and every year, but Jamil was there for all of it. In 2010, he made a shift and joined MSNBC, working as a producer on The Rachel Maddow Show as it catapulted to the top of cable news. And after that, he worked for Melissa Harris-Perry on her groundbreaking news show. From Steve Sable to Rachel Maddow, Jamil Smith was a guy who learned from the stars who did things right. And at one point, it was time for him to step into the spotlight and let his own stars shine. He'd go on to work as a reporter for The New Republic and MTV News, where he covered police shootings, presidential elections, and wrote a cover story for Time magazine about how the movie Black Panther changed history. And now he's continuing to make an impact as a senior writer for Rolling Stone, as a regular contributor on MSNBC, and every day on Twitter. And he's been repeatedly named to the Route 100 list of leading black influencers in America. For over two decades, Jameel Smith has been a student of history, of culture, of race, of politics. He's been a translator. He's been a teacher. He's been a critic. He's been a Renaissance man, artfully dissecting the intersections in the fabric of our country that make it great and sometimes make it not so great. He's a teller of stories and of truths. He's a mirror on America at a time when America needs one so badly. To see what we look like and to see what we look like when we're not as pretty as we thought we were. February is Black History Month, but Jameel Smith is a professor of black history, of cultural history, of political history, of American history every month of the year. And his voice will be increasingly important, impactful, and inspiring as the election nears. In the last episode, I talked about the need at this pivotal time in American history for every American to find his or her way into the arena. And every day, new leaders are stepping forward to answer that call. It's also time for the stars to shine. It's time for leaders to step forward, to have the courage to speak up, to speak out, and to turn the powerful light of attention on those in power, to hold them accountable, and to challenge them to do better. That's what Jamil says his job is, to push the candidates to be better. And he's doing that. And he's doing it for us, too, in service to where he came from, to where he's been, and to where he's going, and to help light the way for where we're all going. Hollywood is the land of stars, and Jamil Smith is a star. He's another guest on this show that's defining what America was, what it is now, and what it will be in the future, and what it can be in the future, if we have the courage to take on the tough issues, many issues that have been untouched in this country for too long, because they're too complicated, because they're too hidden, because they're too hard, because they're too hot. From mass incarceration, to campus rape, to queer marriage, to Colin Kaepernick, to stop and frisk. Jameel Smith is a shining star. Sorry. Jameel Smith is a star shining powerful light on issues and communities that are far too often overlooked, neglected, or just forgotten. Jameel's a light that's shining brightly. 
and brighter by the day. And like Jamil, this is an episode that's going to rise above the heat and bring the light, like the sunshine in California. It's a Pacific Ocean of integrity. It's a Capitol Records building of information. It's a Disneyland of impact and a Hollywood sign of inspiration. America is still a place where people still come because they believe they can be stars. A place where dreams can come true. Where a star can come out of nowhere and make headlines that shock the world. All the way from South Korea to winning an Oscar for Best Picture. All the way from Mayor of South Bend, Indiana to winning the Iowa caucuses. All the way from being born in Brooklyn to working for decades representing the second smallest state in America by population to potentially becoming the first Jewish president in American history. America is still a place where stars can rise, where dreams can become reality. And Hollywood is a city of stars. Hollywood is a city of dreams. And just like America, it's got its faults. But in the end, I love it. Especially in February when it's 30 degrees and cold as hell back home. Even with the traffic, even with the overwhelming nonsense of celebrity culture, even with the scooters littering the sidewalks, I love Hollywood. And I love L.A. Welcome to a season of political dreams and a time when we all dream of better days ahead for America. Welcome to Los Angeles. Welcome to Angry Americans in Hollywood. Welcome to episode 46. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, welcome to Los Angeles. I come to you live from the hallowed and relatively new and very fancy studios of Crooked Media, and we have a very, very special, timely, important, inspiring, interesting guest, the great and powerful Jameel Smith. What's up? How I, you doing? I'm good. I'm welcome good. Welcome to LA, brother. Thank you, dude. You're not, always, you're not from here originally. Hell no. So I don't know if I should actually be welcoming you here. Uh, no, but I appreciate the but, fact that you did. Thank you. But I, I am, you know, I'm a, I'm a Clevelander transplanted here. Yeah. Born and raised Clevelander. But uh, yeah, I've been here. I've been out here long enough. I think that I can, you know, maybe be on the welcome committee. Don't you find that people who are not from here welcome people who are not from here more often? Well, I think there's enough people. <laughs> I mean, like there's, there's so many people who aren't from here yeah. <laughs> that live here. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually rare that you run into a, a born and raised Angelino, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of us transplants, especially so, a lot of us Clevelanders out here. Yeah. I want to talk about Cleveland. I want to talk about a lot of things, but first of all, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask of, of all our guests, because we are here in California. Uh, Jamil Smith, what is your drink of choice? Uh, Red Stripe, sir. Brewed in Jamaica. Yes, I, I love uh, a good. First of all, I love a good, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, Jamaican beer. You know, I, I mean, first of all, it's it's got a nice little spice to it. Um, it comes in a particularly unique bottle. 
Um, and it's something that, you know, when I was first starting to get a taste for beer, uh, just really appealed to me. So Absolutely. Know. Well, salute. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Great choice. Also, the fact that it's uh, brewed by black folks. Also, not, yes. Not a bad thing. No. And it is also, I don't know if anybody on this show to date has chosen a beer. Huh. And, and that's an excellent choice. Of all the beers, like, I feel like Red Stripe is a fucking home run. Like, the bottle is amazing. You know, the inspiration that it brings, the taste, it's like, you know. Yeah. And if you've ever had a Red Stripe in Jamaica, it just kind of compounds the experience and makes it that much more memorable. But you're right about the bottle. Yeah. The bottle is, like, unique. It feels old school. It also feels like, you know, from my dark, it feels uniquely throwable. Doesn't it it's make like you feel like bit, you're on a beach, though, a little bit? It does. It does. It does. But I love that choice. And we're going we're gonna to drink some Red Stripe here while we have a conversation about all the amazing and interesting and wild and weird shit that's going on in the world. We come to you today uh, fresh out of New Hampshire, yeah. fresh out of Iowa, fresh out of the State of the Union, fresh out of the Oscars, fresh out of the Super Bowl. And these are all things that you're uniquely positioned to talk about. Like you sit at this really unique intersection between politics and race and culture and sports. Yeah. So it, it's kind of an, a great time to be you. <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad. And not a bad town to be in, for yeah. sure. So let's start with um, la- last night. Well, we're, we're coming to you recording on Wednesday. This will drop on Thursday. Uh, New Hampshire is over. We actually have a conclusion, unlike in, in Iowa. Yeah. What are your top line takeaways, Jamil? Well, first things first, uh, I mean, Bernie Sanders, you know, let's start with, you know, who actually won as opposed to uh, talking about what big nights, uh, the second and third place people did, uh, that did have. I mean, I think the cable news networks were, I think, a little too obsessed with that. Let's talk about who actually won. I mean, Bernie Sanders, uh, I think, is showing signs of uh, being the only candidate who's actually able to form a working coalition. Um, younger people, uh, not just uh, younger people, but a diverse uh, coalition of younger people uh, that, you know, I think people say that, you know, you can't win races with uh, younger voters uh, ages 18 to 25. Well, uh, you know, he's turning out people, uh, frankly, you know, diverse crowds in Iowa and New Hampshire, which which, frankly, you don't really see. Um, and he's bringing in folks uh, maybe who have been disenchanted uh, previously by the political process. I, I'm interested to see where this goes uh, going forward in uh, Nevada and in uh, South Carolina for sure. Can that appeal uh, be translated into uh, states that are you know, considerably more diverse and offer different challenges? So I want to I want to go through a lot of the candidates with you and get your unique perspective on all of them. But I also want to talk about the intersection of class and race and diversity, which I think is one of the most underreported, under uh, misunderstood, uh, and, and just an area that lacks focus in understanding our politics. In part because I feel like white people, especially, don't know how to talk about it or are uncomfortable talking about it. Right. And um, despite all the efforts for diversity, you know, a lot of the media narratives are still driven by white people and driven from outside of places like Iowa and outside of places like New Hampshire. But the intersection around Bernie Sanders is particularly fascinating. And and so let me let me ask you. Um, what is it about Bernie? Why, why do young people of color, why are they interested in Bernie Sanders? Well, I think, uh, you know, I talk to younger people of color that are intrigued by Bernie Sanders. They see a person who is driven to attack problems that inherently disadvantage people of color, or I, without using that term, black, Hispanic, indigenous people more acutely than they do 
other, you know, other Americans in general. So, you know, here's a guy who has a uh, who has plans that are going to attack these disproportionate discrimination, discriminatory issues more, you know, uh, yeah, I guess you could say um, more uh, to the point than, say, you know, Elizabeth Warren or or any of these other moderate candidates. So they see a guy who's really going to solve the problem. They don't care what package it comes in. They see, uh, they don't care if it's socialist or how it's branded. They see a guy who's actually going to work with them uh, to solve the problem. I see a little bit of a problem with that thinking. Um, With... You have a guy who's, you know, who's, who's, who's branded himself as a democratic socialist. Well, he's going to have to work with or, you know, get through a campaign. How then are other Americans, you know, going to take and understand Bernie Sanders? Republicans are inevitably, if he becomes the nominee, going to brand him as a communist. Right. They're just going to. Right, right. They need right. to have a plan for how they're going to get him through to the presidency. What is the plan? Uh, I've, so let me I've ask, yet to understand it. Yeah. How are they going to pay for the Medicare for all plan? We don't yet really have the explanation for that. Um, there are things about his campaign that trouble me. Uh, the class versus race analysis. Uh you know, there are things that trouble me about that. I, I just, there, frankly, there are things that he has come forward on. Um, he speaks very passionately about the need to eliminate racism in our society, about the need to eliminate misogyny. Um, I believe Bernie when he says these things because he's done the work uh, as an activist. Uh, I believe, listen, we don't need to be, uh, have me be convinced on these things. But what I need to see from him are the embrace of race conscious policy uh, in the way that um, I, I think, you know, he's done with class. Yeah. You know, and I just want to make sure that, you know, we understand that you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can, in fact, you know, put forward uh, policy that, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, if you put forward policy that addresses class, Yes, inevitably, that is going to have an effect on, uh, you know, certainly, you know, people, um, black and Hispanic folks, maybe disproportionately. But I need him to understand, I need it to incorporate that directly into the policy. Yeah. And I I need that, I don't know, I just need it to be a little bit more explicit. Can can I ask you to to drill down on something that, sorry, that I think I hear from a lot of folks and and a bit in— do you trust him? Like, there's a point of him that he's 78 years old. Mm-hmm. Okay, he is. He's an old dude. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he's operating in a very, very dynamic environment. Mm-hmm. And on a very basic level, you know, I've got plenty of criticisms about Bernie Sanders. I've worked alongside Bernie Sanders. I've worked against Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And at times, he is an ideologue. Yeah. He is. You can argue that he's so principled. He's always been the same way. Or you can argue that he doesn't move, and that's why more things don't get done. Right. right? When he was the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, he packed everything into, into omnibus bills and said, "You got to vote for the whole thing or nothing." Right. And oftentimes Republicans would just say no, and they'd vote against it, and we'd have nothing. Right. So uh, that's one component is like the practical component of it. But 
He's an old guy who seems to, you know, be hanging on. He's got a lot of great surrogates who are very dynamic, who understand the media environment. I feel like he's a slip away from a Biden moment. Mm. And and I wonder if other folks are worried about that. If he wasn't Bernie Sanders and someone told you, I got this profile of a guy and he's from Vermont, he's 78 years old, he's white, he's like, you know, he, he this is what he what he stands for. I don't know how many people would trust him not to screw it up. Well, here's, the, here's a couple of things. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I understand that. And I, I don't, look, I've never met Bernie Sanders. I've never had a conversation with Bernie Sanders. Uh, it's tough for me to answer that question on a, on an empirical level. What I, well, here's the thing. Here's a couple of things I am concerned about with Bernie Sanders. Number one is with regards to his health. He's 78 years old. He's had an incident with his health during this campaign, and we still don't know nearly enough about his health. He, he won't release his health records. Yeah. And most recently, as like recently as this week, you know, we've had inquiries about his health, and they're still cagey about releasing his health records. Why won't you release your health records? Just do it. Yeah. That, and that's a core issue, right? Because he wants to contrast himself with the dishonest Donald Trump, right? right. Who, who he's going to say is a guy you can't trust. He's the most disastrous president in history. But also, when you look across the landscape, Jamil, you got Biden's late 70s, Trump's late 70s, uh, Sanders' is late 70s, Warren is close, Pelosi is close. Mm-hmm. Like, if you picked five people in their late 70s, early 80s, the likelihood that all five of them would live one year is low. Well, I mean, One of them is probably going to get sick or potentially die. That, that, that's a mm-hmm. statistical reality, right? So when you talk about Bernie in particular, a guy who's flying around all the time, who's got tremendous pressure, you know, the physical demands of being on a campaign are very high. So I, th- I think his yeah. age is an issue, but even mm-hmm. more so, it's the issue of transparency. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like he's holding himself to, to a lower standard here than he wants to hold other people to. Yeah. And I wouldn't necessarily group Warren in there with her, with them. I think she's about 70 or 71. Yeah. You know, if you see her on a yeah. stage, she's, you know, bouncing around like she's sure. 20 years sure, younger than but, that. But plenty but, of 70 year olds have heart attacks out of the blue who run marathons yeah, all the time, right? Yeah, like plenty of people happen, our age. Could happen, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, but to me, it's about, it's, it's less about, Sanders' age, the, the fact that he's had a recent incident that is telling me that, hey, we need to see your health records. So there's there's that. But also his recent statement that he didn't truly understand uh, the seriousness, and I'm paraphrasing here, of systemic racism until he ran for president. I mean, think about That's how, what I'm talking about. Think about That's how long he's about. been in office. Think about how long he's been in politics. And and the, 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 the most troubling thing about that statement to me is you didn't understand it until you ran for president. Yeah. I mean, it took you running for president to, un, to, to grasp the seriousness of this. What about running for president made you grasp that? Yeah. So does he become for people, uh, you know, we keep saying young people. And if people of color is not an appropriate or accurate term and is a better way to phrase it, please help me, help me. Well, I just want to be more specific yeah, because okay. I, I just, you know, with people of color, I think there are some people I know certainly within our business don't like that term. So I just want to be more specific um, in terms of speaking about um, those communities because all of them have different needs and, right, and, right. and, and specific uh, interests. So when, when I, it's not about necessarily using, using the, the term, but what, what, what I want to say is, you know, I think 
you have with uh, Sanders, you know, he he's not the only one for me that has, I've got real concerns about. Yeah. I've got real concerns about uh, people. Can, can we stand him for a second there? Yeah. I want to yeah. ask you this. Are people, you know, the wide varieties of people that we're talking about, whether it's young people or, or Hispanics, are a lot of people looking at him in the same way evangelicals looked at Trump? Mm. In that, they said, you know what? He's, he's not exactly who we want, but he's what we got. And I think he's going to stand up for what I believe in. So I'm going to pull the lever for him. It, it, it seems to me like a parallel. And also similarly, and, and I think it's, like, I've been looking for an opportunity to focus on Sanders on this podcast. And I think this is the time. There's also a point of what he and Andrew Yang both bring to especially young people, which is promising you free shit. Mm. Right. And Andrew Yang is smart. He leads with, you know, I'm going to get everybody a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks. When George Bush, uh, George W. Bush got elected, he gave everybody an immediate tax rebate. Bernie Sanders is saying, I'm going to give you free college. I'm going to erase all your debt. And if you're a new voter, regardless of what your, your gender or ethnic breakdown is, you know, that is something that may bring you in the fold. Right. It may bring mm-hmm. you forward. If you say, hey, I'm going to make college free. Mm-hmm. Right. That that brings me into the tent. It gets me engaged. He sounds like a guy who I can talk to. But on some levels, Bernie Sanders is selling bullshit. Right. Like we know it. Like those of us who've worked in politics, I think, really do believe that, that somebody's got to call out Bernie Sanders for selling the impossible dream. Like some of this is unrealistic. This week, uh, the V.A., it just announced they're delaying the the implementation of the electronic record keeping system at the VA. That is a system that they've been trying to reform since the early 2000s. I stood at a press conference with Barack Obama in 2009, mm-hmm. and he stood up and said, we're going to fix it. Every president says this dream that they're going to make the VA amazing. They're going right. to make it wonderful. Everybody's going to get a free puppy and all the, you know, the, the, the electronic record keeping is going to be like walking into an Apple store, right? And everybody says it, but nobody ever checks the receipts. Nobody ever comes back and holds Barack Obama accountable now in 2020 for the fact that that was 11 years ago, right? Like they've been talking about fighting the bureaucracy of the VA longer than we've actually been fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. So I, I wonder, you know, you're, you're an expert on culture. Like you, you mm-hmm. worked in, in football, you've worked in, in many different medias, you write for Rolling Stone, you sit at a lot of different intersections. Like, is there a part of this is just salesmanship? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm also the son of a veteran, you know, who's yeah, had to right. recently navigate the VA's bureaucracy himself. And I, you know, I, I see, you know, how ridiculous that is, you know, to to say to veterans, hey, we're going to fix this uh, and it's going to make it sound like it's easy. Uh, it's almost offensive. Uh, but isn't it equally offensive for Sanders to say he's going to get rid of everybody's college debt? Well, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think here's the thing. I think that it's something to shoot for, but you got to explain how you're going to do it. Right. That to me, I, I think here's what I, I, I don't like when Amy Klobuchar says that, hey, I think this is unrealistic and we shouldn't even try. That I don't like. I don't want to hear somebody. I don't want to hear a politician tells me tell me no. This is too too going to be too hard, and we're, we shouldn't even try. And you know, let's just shoot for something that's easier to do. I don't want, don't don't be a politician. Tell me tell me that. Oh, tell me what's realistic. And you know, I, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear somebody tell me you're going to shoot high. And then I want you to have a plan for how you're going to do it. But then I also want you to have a plan for, okay, if it fails, here's what we're going to try to do next. Right. That's what, that's what I need. That's what I'm hiring you to do. Right. I want you, I want to hiring you to do, have plan A, plan B and plan C. So what I'm hearing from Bernie Sanders is that he has plan A. Right. And what's yeah, next? Yeah. On a very basic level, right? The, the criticism about whether or not Bernie Sanders can win. Okay. Versus mm-hmm. Trump, I think is very important. 
and and you uh, you have written about many of the candidates, mm-hmm. and you've also written about you know some of the candidates that you say even if they can win, it's not enough to nominate them because there are bigger issues, yes. right? Like Michael Bloomberg. You've written a piece about Michael Bloomberg. You've yes. been very critical of Michael Bloomberg. I think the argument now as Biden uh, falls, right, and mm-hmm. and and Sanders ascends. And you've got this kind of, you got Sanders and you got Warren on one side, and then you got Klobuchar, Buttigieg, and Biden. Yes. Right? I don't think I'm missing anybody. Yang is out today now. Deval Patrick is out now. A lot of people are falling quickly, right? So you're going to have a choice to make within the Democratic Party of either Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders or Buttigieg and likely Biden, right? And, and, and looking, Amy Klobuchar, and, and, and Amy Klobuchar, right? Who knows how that'll shake out? But they're, they're disparate tribes, right. right? On the battlefield. And then if this is Game of Thrones, right, then you got the dragon. That is Bloomberg, okay? <laughs> and he comes flying in. And I use, Blo- I use Bloomberg. Uh, the dragon example is good, right? Because in my view, yeah. Democrats are shitting on Bloomberg for a lot of the wrong reasons, right? If you're, if you're in a fight, you want a dragon, right? And if you don't get the dragon, you know what happens? The White Walkers will take the dragon, right? And, and everybody who says, you know, B- Bloomberg should be out of this, independent of his electability, I welcome his resources. As someone who isn't independent, who says, I'm looking at the landscape and all I want to do is beat Trump because I think Trump is worse than everything. I think the White Walkers are the worst thing there can possibly be. And anybody who can be an ally to me against the White Walkers is an advantage. The other example I would give is nukes. Like nobody wants nukes, Mm -hmm. right? But we don't want the Koreans to have our nukes, North Mm -hmm. Koreans to have our nukes. And sometimes you have nukes in part as a deterrent. So I look at Bloomberg on this battlefield as a guy who can bring resources, who can bring guns to the most important fight of our time. Yeah. Um, I want, how do you see it? Here's how, please. And, and talk about your thoughts, please, on, on Bloomberg, because your voice has been really important in this discussion as he continues to ascend. He's third in the national polls now. Here's how right? Michael Bloomberg would have been most useful in all of this. Michael Bloomberg, who is wealthy, by the way, I, don't th- I think in, in a way that I don't think most people quite understand. Michael, Michael Bloomberg has around $58 billion. So just try to wrap your mind around what that is, if you're listening. So, you know, that is, that is like several, you know, trips around the earth more than Trump. (laughs) Okay. Right. Right. (laughs) Okay. Right. Um, So we're, um, you know, this is a, a guy that's wealthy beyond all kinds of conception. Here's how he would have been useful. He would have been useful if he hadn't run for president and used his money to help fund campaigns, not simply of other people running for president, but help felons in Florida gain their right to vote through Amendment 4. Those folks in Florida have to pay their fines by law. It was ruled. Uh, they have to pay fines that they owe on uh, their judgments, uh, you know, on their, so that in, in order to regain their right to vote. Uh, essentially, it's really a de facto poll tax. I don't, it, whether it was a mistake written into the law or it's a bad judgment, they have to pay what's owed on their judgment in order to regain their, their right to vote even though Amendment 4 was passed overwhelmingly by the people of Florida, bipartisan. Yeah, but he's got enough money to do both, Jamil. I like, know. Right? Like, he doesn't have to— Right. Like, he, 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 oh. if, he, if he goes down and focuses on that, that's great. Right. I think it's important. But, I don't mean but to dismiss the, it. But here's the problem. Yeah. If he does both, it's, it looks like it's doing it for him. Because if he—but yeah. if, he, if, he, if he pays, if he pays, the, if he pays it 
if he pays it, he looks. I mean, he's running I, for president. I understand what he's you're like. He's from. like he's paying it. He's, he's like, but hey guys, is, I did this, and I'm like, I'm expecting you yeah. basically to vote for me. Do you, I don't know if you, you can't really do that as a candidate. You're a journalist, and you've been obviously advocating for many of the positions on on the political left. Are you a Democrat, or how do you identify yourself? I mean, look, I I, I have in the past registered as a Democrat when I lived in New York because I needed to vote in, in the primary. Right. Right. You know. Yeah. And so I don't look at myself as a Democrat per se, because yeah. I listen, I, when people ask me like, Oh, do you have a candidate in the race? And I say, my answer always is um, I'm not rooting for any of these people. Uh, my job is a journal is, as a journalist is to push these people to be better. Right. Um, right. I need to, and I've told them most of them to their faces. I've had either on the record or off the record sessions with um, m- m- most, most of them. I, no, I wouldn't say most of them. Um, I can tell you uh, Warren Buttigieg, Harris, um, Booker, um, just off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. And I've told every one of them to their faces, um, look, I'm not rooting for you. Um, my my job is to push you to be a better candidate uh, mm-hmm. in whatever way that, that manifests itself. Mm-hmm. And I would tell every one of them to their faces the same thing. And I, I, I you know, my, my estimation is I would speak to any candidate um, running for anything, probably except Trump. Um, cause I don't waste my time with people who would lie to me. I want to come, I want to come back to that, right? Cause the reason I ask is that there is this massive ripping apart of the democratic party that's happening right now. Yeah. Right? And you're a thought leader. You're in a place where you can influence the discussion. You can get people to think about things differently. You can galvanize support, right? People read your column and they think differently about someone like Bloomberg and maybe they take their money or their time and, and go elsewhere. But there's a part of this that, that has a strategic element that I feel like the Democrats, and I'm using that broadly, are missing, right? Like a lot of things people would like Bloomberg to do. You know what he could also do is sit home and do nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is a serious risk, right? For a long time, the right has had people like Sheldon Adelson. They've had billionaires yeah. that have created Fox News and massive machines. And what I think Bloomberg is doing is building a machine, right? He's gonna be, he is building a machine. And now that we come out of New Hampshire, you see which machines matter. Buttigieg built a machine. It's a small machine that's rising. Maybe he's Tesla, okay? <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's coming, yeah. right? And it's growing. And we'll see how far it goes, right? Whether or not they can you know, create the solution to all uh, combustion <laughs> vehicles or not, we'll see. Right. And then you got you know, um, Bernie, who's like, I don't know, what, Toyota or something? Like he's just, <laughs> He just keeps churning and, and, and chugging out. But you've got Bloomberg, who's coming in and offering to hand multiple vehicle lines to whoever is picked, right. right? I think the reality is that he won't get the nomination, right? Mm-hmm. But he will influence the nomination, and it, it may end up being Sanders, or let's say it's Sanders or, 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 or Biden, right? Or mm-hmm. Buttigieg, any of the three. Right. And he has thousands of people. He hired 2,000 people, I think, in the last month, people who now have retirement accounts and have good pay and health benefits, and they're sure they can be in the fight until December. So he's got his own army, right? Mm-hmm. And he is going to hand that to somebody. Right. Right. And, and let them drive because they're going to be the candidate. Right. And at the same time, he's going to do some asymmetric warfare on the side and the dragon, you know, might go higher, might go lower. And maybe he'll bring another dragon in. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah. why does the strategic imperative, in my view, 
get lost? Is that part of the primary process? Is it like people want him to be better? I get that. But at the same time, the stakes are so fucking high. If Trump wins, all the issues you care about are gone. Right. All the issues that so many people in the Democratic Party care about are gone. They're not even on the table. They're going backwards. So to some extent, I've been very critical of the Democrats eating their own. Right. And it feels like a moment where the Democrats are continuing to eat their own and continue to spend resources on each other and, and a lot of ink in places instead of focusing on how to coalesce in whatever way possible around the common enemy. I think there's two problems that are existing right now. One is that I think too many people are getting wrapped up in this cold of personality around their particular candidates. Yeah. I think people are getting so wrapped up in, hey, I really love my particular guy or lady that I'm really invested in. And I think for certain candidates, it's been a healthier thing than others. Um, I think the Warren folks you've seen in polls, they are very willing. If Warren goes by the wayside, they are very willing to hop on with someone else. I, and I think that's a, frankly a reflection of the mentality of the candidate. You've seen in the, in the recent time interview with Charlotte Alter, she says, look, I am more focused on getting my policies accomplished, my policies right. in, you know, put into reality than me being elected president. If, 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 if Pete Buttigieg or Bernie Sanders were elected and they adopted my policies and got them done, hey, I'm great. Right. That's cool. Great. I don't see Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg saying the same things. I need to hear. I need to hear them saying that. I need. I need to hear it. So I, I hear you on that. And, and the you know one, what I mean. I, I, or Mike I, Bloomberg, frankly, saying that. Yeah, I'm, Mike Bloomberg. I think he's again. I I I appreciate the resources that he brings to the fight. I think Bloomberg, like everyone else, is flawed. I think your point about the cult of personality, Jamil, is really important because everybody loved Andrew Yang. Yeah. Not everybody's going to vote for him. Andrew Yang's gone. Right. Right. Andrew Yang was rocking. He was on every news show, but you need a machine. Right. You need a successful business, right? You can't just have, like, there's plenty of people who are like, this is a really cool t-shirt. Great. And then that, that, that brand is out of business because it's not a sustainable business model. Right? right. So I think that's what we're seeing with Andrew Yang, right? Where Andrew Yang is going to be something. He's going to be around. I hope he runs for mayor of New York. I think he's going to have a long career, but keeping a ground game keeping ads up, keeping people on payroll, mm -hmm. paying for health benefits right. is expensive and hard. So you got to have a machine. And I think that's what we're seeing now. The machines are starting, the wheels are coming off on some of them mm -hmm. and they just fall right off the map and others are, are chugging along. And some of them are going to need a fuel injection, right? We'll see if, if what happens to Biden in South Carolina, we'll see what happens in Nevada. And this could change pretty quickly. Right. But Demo there's, you know, the old saying that, um, that Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. While we're talking about mm -hmm. all this, Trump is just stacking money up. Right. He's stacking money, he's stacking surrogates, he's stacking ground game. I mean, and, and, and the fight is coming. So at what point, is there a point where the Democrats get together? And, and when you say that, I want to ask you this. I don't think Bernie's going to do it. I think Bernie's going to push all the way through, maybe through the convention. And you see it more and more. There's a resistance that if Bernie loses... I don't think Bernie's people are going to be as cool with this as everybody else's. That's, that's my assessment. Mm -hmm. Seeing the friction flying at me on Twitter and everywhere else, I don't think that his people are just going to say, okay, great, Biden, or okay, great, Buttigieg, because yeah. he is an ideologue, and, and he is not willing to compromise his ideals, which is respectable on some levels, yeah. but not practical on another. What concerns me, and it gets to my second point, what concerns me is that, what it, is that folks are not really keeping their eye on the prize. And that is because too many folks do not have skin in the game. 
or they don't think that they have skin in the game. Right. Like Trump's presidency, <laughs> okay, I think is a really interesting experiment, social experiment. I think it has actually acquainted all of America to a, to a varying to varying levels with the experience of marginalized people. Now, we are in this election even, we're actually a lot of folks are getting the experience of, you know, having to be pragmatic about their vote. Right. You know, um, this is the experience that black voters have every single election. Mm. <laughs> every election we have to do this. Mm. We have to be pragmatic about our vote. We are, we often have to vote uh, for who we are you know, either forced to vote for or, you know, are left with our, right. our best worst choice, um, as, as we often have are put. And a lot of uh, folks who are not black are now faced with uh, this decision. And so welcome to it. This is what it feels like. Um, being living in, in America under Trump um, is a, a you know a, 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 a you know bottle of you know, I guess stress and anxiety <laughs> yeah. um, that uh, acquaints you. I think um, at, a, a, at a very small level uh, with what it is like to be a marginalized. Uh, you know, minority, uh, to use a word that I actually hate, but I think people understand it better. A marginalized minority in this country. Yeah. Um, Welcome to it. Yeah. And I think that people need to take that experience into the ballot box with them. Understand what it is. Remember what it's like to feel that way uh, and understand how much it sucks. And remember how how much you hate feeling like that uh remember how distasteful and painful and scary it is and understand that there are those of us who have felt that way every single day of our lives uh and there's some of us you know and i see this as a black person who grew up in the suburbs more privileged than a lot of other black people who are suffering a lot more than i am today you need to understand that there are folks who are going to suffer a lot more if this man is reelected and you need to get over yourself and realize that voting is a selfless act and you need to realize that it is not about you. It is not about your candidate. It is not about who you fall in love with or your particular movement. It is about making a choice to put this country on one path or the other, Mm. period. Mm. And look, I put it at the end of my column yesterday. A primary is about making a decision about a nominee. This is what a primary is for. You are trying to decide who is going to be best for representing your party uh, and who is best going to best govern as president. That is another thing we need to also, you know, with regards to Sanders, that I'm concerned about, how are you, like, th- whether or not he is going to be a good governor. Um, yeah. Okay? Just a, a quick note on that. But, you know, I need to, um, you know, really stress to folks Th- that this is a, a a choice. We are we are we are the HR for this country. Okay, it's a it's a job search. Okay, it is not it's not that it's not much deeper than that. Okay, mm. it's not about the soul of our nation mm. or any of that other bullshit. Mm. Okay, mm. it's a job search. Okay, we are hiring someone. Okay, for a job. Look at it like that. Mm. Period. End of story. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Now we drink.
This is why it helps to have liquor on this show. <laughs> you, you ain't lying. I, I, you actually weren't going to do the beer. On you. You, you were like, you know, I got to drive afterward. I said, no, we're I'm gonna, over we're, here, Mr. I Responsible. Said, we're going to get into some stuff. So <laughs> we're going to need to have a drink from time to time. Because that's where real political conversations happen is with a beer or with a drink or, you know, not in a cable news box. Right. Yeah. And, and that's one of the many reasons why I was happy to have you come on this show. Because, look, war and conflict is not an issue you can jam into a two-minute soundbite. And I've been trying to do it for decades. Yeah. And race isn't either. And, yeah. and you've been on that that front as well. Yeah. And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and neither is gender, which I wrote yeah, about in this essay. In so this, much of it. In this book that just came so out. So much of it, yeah. uh, Believe me, um, How Trusting Women Can Change the World. Uh, this anthology, I just came, uh, had an essay in uh, with uh, Jessica Valenti and Jacqueline Friedman, mm. uh, who are the editors. I have an essay in it called uh, She Can't Breathe, which is about, which is, of course, a play on words uh, from uh, Eric Garner's uh, right. final words. Uh, which is about black women. When and, he was, for folks and, who may not know the reference, when he was choked out by the police, he said, I can't breathe. Exactly. Said, and, breathe. Um, you know, of course, uh, you know, Anu Bakwadi, you know, who founded yeah. Swan, who has an essay in the, in the book. Um, and it's the book's really just full of essays, uh, women and men, uh, Congresswoman uh, Ayanna Presley has an essay in the book as well. It's all uh, really just about uh, ending rape, man. And uh, it, it, that's, it's some heavy stuff, but it's, yeah. worth, it's worth taking a look at. So when you think, Jamil, when you, when you think about the, the last exchange we had, where you talked about it, we're picking a person for a job, right? At the end of the day, you're, you're a student of history. You're a student of culture. Who do you think is the best person to beat Trump? Uh, it's tough. All to, the it, other stuff aside, right? We're just talking, you used to cover football. Yeah. Right? You used to, and I want to get into that, of course, right? We got to talk football. <laughs> oh, we got to talk football. <laughs> but, but you used to cover football. You used to write about football. You know, this is the Super Bowl. Right, I don't know who you picked in, in the game with the Chiefs versus the Niners, but this is a game. You got to make a pick. Who do you think is 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 the best quarterback to go up against? You know, this is not even. I don't want to disrespect the New England Patriots, which you're going up against here. But like this is this is the, this is the monster, right? Mm-hmm. And you got to give the ball to somebody, and you care deeply on a personal level. You care deeply on a moral issue uh, level. Who who's the quarterback you're throwing in there? It's funny that you mentioned the Patriots because I'm picking the person that represents a part of New England. It's Elizabeth Warren. I mean, to me, she is not only— You think she can win? Yeah, I think she can win. Even now where the questions are, she and Biden may fall out in the next couple of weeks. I mean, first of all, the column I wrote today, we're talking on Tuesday. Yeah. um, Everybody needs to slow the hell down. I mean, we've had two contests in two small states that are more than 90% white. Like, whole swaths of this country— that have, you know, pretty much most of the black and indigenous and Hispanic and Latino and Asian <laughs> folks have not had a chance to even vote yet. They haven't even had a chance to meet these people. Yeah. Like, but do we have to slow, slow the down? hell down, but man? Can we afford to slow down when candidates are dropping out? Sure. And, and, and we, we obviously— I wish Andrew Yang hadn't dropped out. Yeah. I wish I wish but Kamala did, Harris hadn't dropped out. How do how do they balance that though, right? Because we're saying, hey, don't drop we out. We need a new but, system, but, but they have to pay the bills, right? Yeah, and and that's the question is like the system is broken. The system Iowa is broken. Not, Iowa should not be first. New Hampshire should not be up front. But in the in in the meantime, they are. Yeah. So the question I have with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, if Elizabeth Warren was moderate, Elizabeth Warren, 
which sometimes you hear. Mm -hmm. There was a point early in the campaign where she sounded a lot more populist. Mm -hmm. She sounded a lot more moderate. And then she, I think, has weaved a little bit and gone a little bit toward Bernie. So where does she sit in the landscape? I don't know. I think I will tell you that the moderates, in my view, and the progressives are more, the the moderates are more likely to rally around Warren than they are around Sanders. If the Democrats pick Sanders, that party's going to get ripped apart. Yeah. If if they don't pick Sanders, is that probably also going to get ripped apart? Mm-hmm. So I feel like between the progressives, Warren has a better chance to unite the tribes. But but I don't know, man. I don't know if she's going to get moderate Republicans. I don't know if she's going to get people in the middle. I don't know if she's going to get independents. I think she's going to get the Democrats. Mm-hmm. She'll bring energy. She's incredibly dynamic. I think she's the fastest learner of all the candidates. She learns so quickly on anything that's happening and is able to spit it out. Yeah. But to our point earlier, it doesn't look like she can build a machine. The machine's out of gas. Or it's close to it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, it seems like there's money issues. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I saw them. They're pulling ads in the next two states, Nevada and South Carolina. I saw that, uh, you know, <laughs> that's obviously an issue. So, listen, I, I can't speak to the mechanics of the campaign. Right. I'm speaking to the candidate and whether or not she would be you know, able to take on Trump if she were the nominee and whether or not she would govern well as president. Um, You know, to me, I think she would be uh, the best. I think she'd be the best person. Mm. Uh, I think that I would be most confident in her abilities Mm. to uh, to get the job done. Having been around almost all of them and I've been in rooms and been in meetings with most of them, I would trust Elizabeth Warren much more so to run the government. To yes. be an executive, to get shit done. She's shown she could do that. Yeah. Right. The Consumer Protection Board was not a thing. She built it. She drove it. She ran it. She was a great advocate. You know, in, in many ways, and you know, we both spent a lot of time in New York City. In New York City, you have the public advocate. Yeah. Which is kind of like the Hellraiser in chief, right? Yep. Like you advocate for people in the same way I have and you have in our in our careers and in our lives. And that's where de Blasio came from. It's where a lot of folks right. have come from. She was kind of a public advocate for the country. And now she's able, I think, to effectively transition into an executive role, much more so than the other progressive, the much more progressive in in Bernie Sanders. So I I think that does give me, at least me, a feeling that if she had her hands on the wheel, she could handle it. Yeah. Right. I don't have that kind of confidence in in Bernie Sanders. I saw him struggle to run the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. You know, all the talk about bringing people together. Mm. He couldn't do it in the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. Yeah. And on a very important point, I brought this up in previous podcasts. When it came down to it, he went into room to negotiate his positions and he lost. When he went yeah. in to do the, 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 the bill for veterans after Phoenix, yeah. he went into the room with John McCain. And John McCain got the biggest expansion of privatization in the VA in history. Yeah. Bernie gave away his own farm. He opened the door. He allowed them to privatize the VA, and he lost. And a, and a senior Republican senator told me, we sent in John McCain because we know he'd win. We knew he'd win. We knew he'd beat Bernie, and he could get Bernie, and that we would walk out with the win. And they walked out with the win. So that's what worries me wow. about Bernie. Wow. But, but let's take a bigger step back. Um, this is Angry Americans. Yeah. And, and a <laughs> lot of folks have had a lot to say about the title Ooh. of this show. Um, and, you know, a lot of people— there's only, I've said this before, there's only really? one group of people, like if I was going to do some polling around, you know, the demographics of, of voters, there's only one kind of people that have consistently had a problem with the name and it tends to be huh. liberal white men, 
right? Oh, imagine that. Because they're kind of uncomfortable with their own anger, and I don't know if I'm allowed to be angry, and like, what do we do with that, right? And maybe some moderate, older, what? but everybody else is angry. I bet they're mad right? that Joker lost Best Picture, too. Maybe, but like, yeah. everybody's angry. <laughs> okay. But in particular, I think everybody has a right to be angry. Yeah. Right? And, and, and uh, communities of color in particular, I think, have a right to be angry. And hopefully, we can all turn that anger into you know, positive impact. That's a theme of this show. But it, it, is, it is a very important time, I think, to understand anger. Yeah. Because Trump understands it. Yeah. And he's channeled it in a lot of ways. And that's what Bernie does. Bernie's channeling anger, right? And in a lot of ways. But you are a, a, an incredible guest for this moment in time. Jameel Smith, what makes you angry? What makes me angry are people who pimp anger. People who take anger and channel it for their own profit. Those are people, that, that's what makes me angry. And I think I've seen that, you know, that I think people who do that make our world cynical um, they exploit our processes and mechanics, and they they are actually what they're the people who clog up the works. Because mm. um, look, we got enough wrong with America. We got enough uh, holes in the boat, as I like to say. Mm. Um, Trump is a guy who not only knows how to exploit anger, but he knows where the holes in the boat are, mm. and he knows how to create more holes. He got into office and he knows where the holes in the boat are. It's like he knew where every hole in America's boat was, mm-hmm. you know, and rather than working to plug the holes, like a responsible president, like, like no American president is going to know, is going to be able to plug every hole. You know, you mentioned Obama with the VA, like, it's just like, he's not, you know, Gitmo, he's just, he's not, he's going to try. Right. And there's going to be people working against him trying to prevent him to, you know, from plugging those holes, but he's going to try to plug as many holes as he can, you know, because that's what actually, you know, actual public servants do. Mm. This guy is out here, you know, with a, with a power drill, right. You know, (laughs) trying to create more holes and inviting other, other of his, you know, friends from overseas to help him, you know, make more holes Mm -hmm. and trying to help him, you know, sink the boat even further. Mm. Um, Thank you for that. That to me, um, I mean, you know, people like, Oh, he's a Russian agent. Uh, I don't care where he's an agent from. Um, The guy is an enemy of the state period. And, uh, you have a you know someone in office who is working against the interests of the United States, and every day we go without the people who are running to replace him not repeating that ad nauseum. Um, I, I I don't understand it. I, I for the life of me, you know you you have you know you haven't you know the guy in office basically complaining that his criminal conspiracy buddy is you know is getting too harsh a sentence he goes and tells uh the, you know complains loudly about that to the doj and you know his lackey in running the doj goes and gives him a lighter sentence mm. i mean we not that long ago people were having conniption fit about bill clinton and you know loretta lynch on a plane and now this happens 
and everyone's just you know going home and watching Sports Center and acting like nothing's nothing's wrong. Mm. I, 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 that that to me is a sign that the cynicism has bled so deeply into our into our culture and beneath our skins that um, you know I just frankly don't know how um, we fix that, and I think that is how uh, that's how he wins this uh, election. It's not. It's, it's not even, I mean, look, there's going to be voter suppression and then all, all kinds of things that, that work against the Democrats. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's less about who, who they pick, but it's more about the cultural issues that they're, that they're never going to be able to fix before November. Hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah. And you, you mentioned Sports Center. <laughs> oh, yeah. We talked about uh, Russian agents, but there's a different kind of free agent, <laughs> a free agent that I want to talk to you about Uh-oh. because. You know, he has picked these holes in the boat to focus on. Mm. And for a long time, one of them was football mm. and the NFL yeah. and, and Kaepernick. And we just finished a Super Bowl where Kaepernick's former team was in the game and hardly talked about it. Nobody talked about it. Yeah. Um, you know, Kaepernick was maybe one of the most, uh, uh, let's see, effective lightning rods. Yeah. Right. In a lot of different ways. Yeah. Right. And, and something that Trump hit on a lot. Right, he hit on a lot because he knew it was a hole that he could open up. Right? Yeah, he can open that hole deeper. But here, here we sit. You, you, your background was working at NFL Films. You worked on. Didn't you work on Hard Knocks? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, I was yeah. an associate producer. Uh, you know, one of the best shows anywhere. Yeah. But um, what are your thoughts on now where we sit on this? Right, like mm-hmm. we covered a lot of stuff. The most of political Super Bowl we've ever seen with the ads and the pregame interview with Hannity. But we didn't really unpack the the Kaepernick thing. Right, mm-hmm. and it's, I hate to even say, call it that, but all of the stuff around it. Mm-hmm. Here we sit later. Um, where are we, right? And, and, and what are your reflections on on the Super Bowl and this moment from a cultural standpoint? And I also want to ask you because it's somewhat related in my view. Um, Kobe's passing mm. is a massive cultural moment. Yeah. And and I want to get your thoughts on that, but maybe you know Kaepernick and football first. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll get to I'll get to Kaepernick first. So yeah, I mean obviously, I mean he was pretty well erased um, by the NFL. I mean I did see they replayed uh, his Super Bowl uh, that he played against Baltimore. I mean yeah. people uh, people seem to forget the last time that the 49ers were in the Super Bowl, Kaepernick was the quarterback. Oh yeah, I was at that game. Yo, I, I was at that game in New Orleans. The light lights went out. Yeah. I kept saying, you have Frank Gore, give him the fucking ball. You're on the four-yard line. And people right? forget, like, if the yeah, lights yeah, hadn't yeah. gone out, yeah. I would I argue that if the lights hadn't gone out, San Francisco probably wins the game. Yeah. Um, well, if they had given the ball to Frank Gore, they definitely would have won the game. Well, yeah. And ironically, they end up losing a Super Bowl again for not running the I ball. I mean, you're kind of blaming Kaepernick for losing the game. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm blaming, I'm, blaming, I'm, blaming the, I'm blaming the coaching staff. No, that's true. Right? Because you're true. on the four-yard line. Like, you got Frank Gore. Like, Kaepernick was still in, what, second, third year at the time, right? Yeah. There was a question of whether or not he was going to be better than Russell Wilson or not. There was was always a debate, right? Yeah. About who, right? Yeah. And now Russell Wilson's a perennial pro bowler. Yeah. But, but sorry. Just missed that throw. It's yeah. just, mm. but yeah. And uh, so, you know, Kaepernick's the quarterback and the last time the 49ers go uh, and then, you know, they go again and what's happened. Well, the NFL's inspire change brand, uh, their little social justice label. Uh, they have a six part mini series uh, featuring Nate Boyer, uh, you know, the, the Green Beret veteran uh, who was Kaepernick's teammate, who was, you know, the, the, the white guy who inspired uh, or basically directed Kaepernick to instead of sitting on the bench during the anthem uh, to instead take a knee. Uh, and so, 
Nate was, you know, hired, I guess, to host a six-part miniseries. Now, you know, no shade to Nate, you know, God bless him, but... I mean, that Everybody is how, loves veterans, man. Right. It's a perfect political tool. I say it all the time. Babies, puppies, and vets. You don't <laughs> want people to talk about Kaepernick? Find a vet. All right. Here's, you know, again, no shade on, on Nate. Right. But, but I also argue that Nate gave him bad advice. Like, you know, I don't know what made Nate, you know, the, the, the arbiter of all things, you know, political activism. But if Kaepernick had came to me, I wouldn't have told him to kneel. I would have said, we can come up with some more creative shit than that. Or, and some stuff that might not divide your base. And also, if he had just <laughs> stayed on the bench, maybe he, it wouldn't have been like a big, as big a deal. <laughs> yeah. Or he could have taken a knee on the first play of the game. There's right. a lot. Of, I mean, again, I'm not one to, to I think the, the movement is important. The issues are important, but it's not lost on the fact that like Kaepernick says he chose it because you said directed. Yeah. Right. Your, your choice of words was that Nate Booyer directed him. Well, I mean, it was recommended. He recommended to, to, to cap that he, that he take a knee. Yeah. It wasn't that he like, you know, told him to do it. Yeah, but the yeah, point is, yeah. is that he, he recommended that he take the knee. Right. And, the point is, is that the NFL, instead of mentioning Kaepernick's name even once or even showing some clips of the the former game. I mean, I watched the whole game. They didn't show any clips of the, of the past game. How ridiculous is that? Like, they didn't yeah. even show any clips of the last game that the 49ers were in. And instead of that, they have a six-part miniseries with the guy who told— Captain taking a knee was yeah. a good idea. I mean, they erased. Come him. on, guys. They, they erased like, Kaepernick. I mean, at, at some point, you know, you're blackballing a player from the league. You know, at some point, you know, you just gotta own it, right? You know, just own it. Just saying, we're blackballing the guy for you know for protesting for his civil rights, and we're doing it because we're scared of our white racist fans. Yeah. Just own it, man. And and the white racist president, right? Like mm-hmm. they, they erased Kaepernick well, from yeah, everything. I'm grouping so, Trump in yeah, with the white but racist. But especially man. him. Because, Pence, because if, be they, if, there was, if there was an election between the NFL and, and Trump, yeah. right? Like Trump was kicking his ass. I met with Roger Goodell during that time period. Mm. He actually invited me in to talk about the polling we had really? done around. Oh, yeah. Was, we'll do a whole maybe separate podcast on that. Ooh. But they said, you know, we're trying to understand what veterans think. And what's really going on here? And unfortunately, you know, the way they had been getting data, it was like the equivalent of like going into Iowa and finding one dude outside a pancake house and saying, hey, what do Iowans think about X? That's basically what the NFL did with, with Nate Booyer, right? There wasn't any extensive polling. They didn't do a strategic process. They didn't bring in Colin Powell and Admiral Mullen and cultural experts like you or me or anyone else, right? Yeah. Like it just kind of ran away and Trump saw it and Trump just kept pounding it and pounding it and pounding it. And the NFL really didn't have a strategy. Like they really didn't know what to do except to try to ignore him, but ignoring Trump doesn't really work. So, you know, I think he beat them up pretty good. And then what they did was kept, kept their head down and hope that he'd pick another target. Mm. And that's what he did. Like then he picked AOC and then he picked Nancy Pelosi and then he had an MP, there are plenty of other things, yeah. but he's always got that card he can pull back, but he won the NFL. You know, nobody kneels in the NFL anymore. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't happen in the Super Bowl. There wasn't a single player that I saw kneeling no, right no. so you could argue at least on that battle space politically trump won i mean here's the thing they did donate hundreds of thousands of dollars to social justice causes uh you with would, a billion dollar market cap so that's like no no no, no. i'm not i'm not believe me i'm yeah. not on the side of the thing you know, <laughs> arguing that they won yeah uh there are players who arguably elicited some concessions from the league out of this it's not like they got nothing. No. But 
They sure didn't get much. It was they, like didn't, they didn't get enough. It's like sending Bernie Sanders in to negotiate. They didn't, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> man, All right. I so, thought I was going to be the Bernie critic on this show. <laughs> no, man. I haven't gotten started yet on Bernie. But um, we, we're going through some heavy stuff. But I, I also want every guest that we have on this show, Jamil, is an inspiring, important, and or iconic American. I think you have been on on the forefront of many of the most important issues of our time, right? And you've been, mm-hmm. you were, we first met, I think, when you were producer for Rachel. Yeah, for Rachel Maddow. Like, that yeah. was back a decade ago now. Literally, oh my God. Yeah, right? Yeah, literally, 2010. I uh, started in the summer of 2010 as a producer for Rachel Maddow Show. And you've been a producer, you've been a writer, you've been front of camera, you've been back of camera. Yeah. So, you know, you've been in the mix for, for 20 years, right? I mean, yeah. at least. Yeah. Um, so, I, w- I want to ask you, you know, what's that like for you? Personally, right? Because I think yeah. uh, part of what I want to do in this show is help people understand the people they think they know. Megan mm. McCain was on last episode, and people felt like they actually understood her in a way they didn't before. They said that about Tulsi. They said about Mayor Pete Buttigieg, about a lot of the, the guests we've had on the show. Because mm-hmm. I want it to be a conversation, not just a, uh, an interview. Right. But, right. but you know, it's got to be kind of surreal for you, man. I mean, it's surreal. I, I just did a television hit, and every single time I do him, it feels— Awkward, uh, because I was behind the camera producing for so long that every single time I'm asked to do one of those things, it just feels strange. Um, I think that there's a point where I'm asked for either my opinion or to talk about things um, where I, I know that I, I feel like I'm volunteering my, my opinion and it's a learned opinion about something where I, I feel like it's valuable and I, I, I do this because I feel like I have something to contribute. And that's always why I wanted to do this. And it's why I was writing for the Mattel blog while I was producing for her. You know, I was, I was trying to, like, you know, you know, wet my, wet my whistle a little bit, I guess you could say, with yeah. regards to this. But I, I just always was, I was always learning at her feet um, the entire time. I mean, I always carry the maxim that Rachel preached while I was her producer with me every single day, which is increase the amount of useful information in the world. Mm. That's what she taught. And I think about that every single day. Mm. Um, And if I'm not doing that with my work, with uh, being on air, uh, with a tweet, even uh, look, I have fun with tweets or an Instagram post or something. Look, I, you can't take everything so seriously. Yeah. But, you know, overall, you got to be increasing the amount of useful information in the world, right. especially in your professional capacity. Mm-hmm. And I just, I take this seriously. I just do, man. Uh, yeah. I, I work too hard to get to where I'm at. Um, I, you know, I'm a kid from Cleveland, man, who, who had no connections. In New York City, I was, um, I, I started... Uh, you know, as a floater, a talent agency out of college. And, you know, William Morris was like four years of, you know, inter- media, I guess you could say graduate school and media yeah. entertainment graduate school. You know, I learned at the feet of talent agents um, in all kinds of different fields. Um, I met some amazing and incredible people, um, but all of them, I'd say for the most part, were doing things I just didn't want to do. Hmm. Um, and I, I still value a lot of those people. One of them is, you know, who I was answering his phones, you know, 20 years ago is now my agent, you know, got, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> that's cool. So the guy whose desk you worked on is now your agent. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. 
And um, I, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm just, you know, in terms of like talking about things coming full circle, yeah. a lot of that knowledge that I gained in that time period, you know, I still use today, mm. you know, and, and I feel like I just tell people all the time, you know, especially if they're coming up, they're young, look, you may have a lot of passions. You know, I thought about being a filmmaker. I wanted to, uh, journalism was always a calling, but you know, so was making films. So was writing. So was, there's so many different things. I, I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I felt like I was being pulled in so many different directions. Mm. And I figured at just one point, I just figured the hell with it, man. I'm just going to do all of them. <laughs> and I'm just going to do yeah. one at a, you know, maybe sometimes I was doing one at a time or just kind of, you know, I was HBO doing, you know, learning, you know, sports production. Um, and, you know, CNN, I was learning news production. Um, NFL films, I was kind of doing, you know, a little bit, of, you know, a little bit of all of them. Um, MSNBC, kind of a little bit of all of them, but, you know, and I eventually, uh, you know, got to a point when I was working for Melissa Harris Perry for three years, doing this amazing, incredible news product that frankly, I just, I, there's just, I don't think there's ever been a show on television like it. And there hasn't been one since. Mm. Um, I'm so, I'm still so proud of what we did with that, but it came a point in time, you know, Melissa and I sat down in her office where I just, you know, I told her, you know, I, I, I got to move on. And she, she knew, she knew. Yeah. And, um, and I started taking steps to, to move on and I had to write full time. Mm. And that was, that just, that was it. and that was that. Mm. And I went on the new Republic and I've been writing full time ever since. And you, and you write a lot. Like I, you told, like I, I think you did two pieces or three pieces. Two this pieces week. in the last day. Yeah, and two and days. I was just like, holy shit! I can't even keep up with how much you're writing, which is important because I think you are carrying forward that message that Rachel brings out. That I think whether you agree with her politics or not, no matter where you come from, you can appreciate that there is a part of her that wants to be the instructor to the country, the professor. Yeah. At a time when you need more information, and now you can see all of her students going on to do great things. But I want to, Jimmy. I'll go back to a question. Uh, that I ask of all guests. You mentioned growing up in Cleveland. Yes. When you were growing up in, in Cleveland, or if it was somewhere else, what was your first car? Uh, I was born and raised in Cleveland. Uh, grew up mostly in a suburb called Shaker Heights, uh, which uh, people read the uh, wonderful book, uh, Little Fires Everywhere. Uh, that's where I grew up. Um, my first car, I actually didn't get until I moved. Uh, I lived in New York for about seven years after college, and uh, I moved to Philly to take the NFL Films job. It was uh, the very first day. Uh, I got, it was uh, August thirty first of '04. I got to uh, Philly and um, quickly, very quickly, got to a Honda dealership and um, picked up a blue 2004 Honda Civic LX. And um, that was the first car I ever owned. And the next day, I drove it to NFL Films for my first day, and walked in. And Steve Sable was the very first. Uh, person I saw as I walked in, I'm wearing a tie like I am now. Uh, and that is not really how you do it at NFL films. <laughs> and uh, he playfully, uh, uh, you know, God rest his soul, um, made fun of me for wearing a tie. Mm. And um, then, but the, the fun story about the car is that on my very first day at NFL films, I got a flat tire ah. coming out of the parking lot. <laughs> what what color was the car, Jimmy? Um, it was like a- like a, You said it was a blue. What kind yeah, of blue? It was like kind of like, um, 
I like a coral blue, like like an electric blue. Ah. And I had it um, I had it for about eight years. Steve, and Steve Sable was a, a an icon. Yeah. Right? I mean, anybody who grew up in the last generation watching NFL films, the great storytelling of, mm-hmm. of Steve, Stable, Steve Sable, right? I mean, he, he built a lot of the NFL brand yeah. that we know, right? Mm-hmm. What Did you learn anything else? Did you learn anything from working near him or around him? Oh, my gosh. He's valuable. Well, Steve Sable, um, by the way, who was just um, now in, inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame, uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Right. Um, and will be, uh, I'm sorry, he was just chosen uh, to be in, into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He'll be inducted uh, later this year. Um, Steve was, with apologies to Rachel, very, who was very close in this, in this standing, uh, the best boss I've ever had. Um, he was extraordinarily kind, but uh, demanding in a in a way that you knew his standards, but he was never going to make you feel as if you had failed him in a way that you could never recover. Mm. Um, I never felt like I had ever disappointed him in a way that uh, you know ever you know made me feel lesser, you know, in his eyes. He always made me feel like I was as equal on the team as the top producers in the building. Mm. Guys had been in there 30 years. Yeah. Um, guys who were, you know, you'd seen in footage, you know, from, you know, old Super Bowls, um, which made me feel great. Mm. Um, i tell you one quick Steve Sable story. Um, aside from... Well, actually, two quick ones. One is when I first uh, brought my dad in the building, you know, to take him around in the tour. My dad, who introduced me to the game, you know, was in, you know, was at the 1964 championship game at, at age 18 to see Jim Brown play. Wow. Um, and was just had his eyes bugged out the entire time walking around the building. I take him around to meet Steve Sable. He, Steve welcomes him into his office and ta- starts talking about how, what a great writer I am. And I... You know, my dad is just bursting with pride and, you know, still talks about it to this day. Um, That's awesome. But my big Steve Stable memory is um, every every team, every one of the 32 teams in the NFL gets their own highlight film. And it's the only thing that teams get their final cut on. Uh, and so my first highlight film that I ever cut was for the then St. Louis Rams <laughs> in 05. And, it, you know, then they had hired a new coach, Scott Linehan. Um, and so it was like a new coach, new approach film. So I'd gone down to St. Louis, uh, filmed a rookie camp where we'd put a wire on Linehan. So we had some footage of Linehan directing rookie camp. Um, and then I'd done an interview with him. So we had some good material for the film because the team, obviously they'd had a new coach. They hadn't done that well the previous season. So we had to fill, you know, some time and I, you know, I made the film and, I, you know, we'd had the final cut of the film and I put it on a mini DV and I'd had the tape and I put, I was about to put it on Steve's desk and he happened to be in his office and knock on the door. I say, Steve, you know, I have um, my highlight film here. I would love if you just take a look at it, give me some notes um, whenever you get a chance. And I was prepared to just leave it on his desk. And he said, well, what are you doing? Uh, well, I said, what do you mean? Oh, I, 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 I. I thought he was asking me, like, what was I doing? Like, leaving it on it. Yeah. I, I said, oh, no. He said, no, what are you doing right now? I, I, well, I'm, I, I'm not busy. Uh, he said, 
well, let's go watch it. So he comes to my office. Steve's office, by the way, is this, this cavernous place. Right. He comes to my office, my little cubby hole, and <laughs> we sit there and we watch the movie. A half an hour highlight film. And just me and Steve Sable. Wow. And he gives me some great constructive notes. He really liked the film, you know, and it made me feel 10 feet tall. Wow. That's and that's story. the kind of guy Steve Sable was. That's a, that's a great story. That's and great so story. Um, I miss him every day. Um, he, uh, you know, um, he, he passed away in 2012. And uh, yeah, it's, um, I went to see him, uh, you know, I was already living in New York. Um, I left uh, to join MSNBC. And he gave me, a, you know, amazing, encouraging, uh, you know, hug before I left NFL Films, you know, and uh, actually wrote Rachel a great note. Mm. And, and, you know, she, well, she, you know, and she, and she, um, she had written him an encouraging note when he, when he got sick and she wrote him um, and he wrote back and she gave me the note. Wow. Um, and I have it framed uh, in my house. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You grew up a Cleveland Browns fan. Yeah, um, we, we had a you know that's a, lot of a, sad, that's a sad that's a bad life. We've choice. had a lot of sad <laughs> issues we've covered so far in this show, but hopefully ones that can turn into inspiration. What yeah. the hell is going to happen with the Browns, man? Like, what what, what do you, what's your take on on the Browns? They're I I say this with trepidation. They're like the Democrats. Like they always find a way to screw it up. Like it, you know, it it, it it really is. Dare it, I dare I say this with trepidation? Please, I'm actually encouraged. Okay. Um. This guy Stefanski, Pengrad, by the way, thumbs mm-hmm. up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fellow fellow Pen guy. Um, I am I'm encouraged by the fact that they seem to be all business. I'm very very thankful that they got rid of Freddie Kitchens. Thank God. Mm-hmm. They had the good sense to I you know I, I, look nothing against John Dorsey personally, but it seemed like he was picking a fantasy team, not mm-hmm. like an actual NFL team that was working together. Mm-hmm. So I'm encouraged to see how they actually construct the roster mm-hmm. going forward. Um, I don't know, man. I, I, people are like, oh, they're one piece away. No. I don't know. Is Baker, we talked earlier about quarterbacks as candidates, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is Baker is Baker the real deal? Can, we, can you build, can seems you build like- a franchise and not just be a good player, but can he be Eli just retired, right? Yeah. Now, who knows what's going to happen to Rivers and others, these iconic quarterbacks that programs were built around. Yeah. Right? And then there's a difference between being a good player and being a pro, you know, a guy you can build a program around. Yeah. Like is is Baker that guy? I mean, he's he's saying the right stuff now yeah. coming out of coming out of the uh humiliating season that they just had. Yes. Um I, he's got to put it on the field. The whole team for me, like as a fan, Look, I mean, they're about to get new uniforms. Thank God. <laughs> really? Oh God! Really? Okay. Terrible. Okay. Terrible. I mean, who puts who puts the name of your city on the front of the uh, uniform? I know the Jets just did it, and that was I, a mistake. I like it. I like it. I like it, it man. They're, they're horrible. Okay. All, All right. right. They got to go back. I mean, this is, look, I'm a traditionalist. You know, I hear you, you got to just just go back to the old ones. You know, just put you know the stripes on the sleeves and just. We need to do a whole show on uniforms. I oh, think we, we really could. Through um, all of them. So the Browns occasionally bring you some happiness. Occasionally bring um, you some happiness. But th- this is another same with qu- the same with the Indians, the Cavaliers. They got. This, I think they're good for me for about a good ten years. Yeah, thanks for the kinda, championship. Thank you, Cavs. That's it. You can run with that forever, right? Whew, thank yeah. God. Well, 
they do bring you occasional happiness, and this is Angry American, so I want to ask you the question I ask of all my other guests as we wrap up, and they may kick us out of this really beautiful Crooked Media Studios. And again, thanks to you know Tommy and 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 Fravro and Love It and those guys for letting us squat in this amazing. This is much better than the closet I sometimes record my podcast in. <laughs> but when you come to New York, we'll have you to the car club. But but Jamil Smith, what makes you happy? What makes me happy? Oh gosh, uh, a lot of things make me happy. Um, uh, I think right now I'm enjoying, right now I'm actually enjoying, uh, I've learned to meditate recently and that has brought me, uh, unexpected peace. And I, I honestly, people are like, Oh, meditation. I've been always kind of poo-pooing it. And that, I mean, trust me, man, I, I, it's it's actually, it's been, it's been really, really helpful. Hmm. So that's been being able to take some time and isolate, I'd say maybe about 20 minutes, you know, in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon or evening to just, um, you know, more or less take vacation from the world. Um, I just went to Japan for 11 days. Wow. Um, solo trip. That really made me happy. Uh, being able to explore this amazing country, um, this environment for the first time in my life, I wasn't in a place that had a, you know, was mostly Eurocentric, Mm. um, being able to challenge myself with a language that I wasn't familiar with to learn uh, about this amazing culture and food and, uh, see these amazing, um, friendly folks who welcome me despite all of my awkward attempts to, uh, (laughs) uh, navigate my, myself around their country. Um, I really, really, really enjoyed myself there. So thinking back to that trip and meditation, uh, I guess you could say a tie for my top, uh, you know, happiness uh, ranking. That's good stuff, man. We all need a little more meditation nowadays. Yes, and travel. And travel. We could all use a little bit more of that, too. And hopefully if we have a new president, travel will be a bit more <laughs> enjoyable for yes. the rest of us here in America. <laughs> yeah, and less permanent, perhaps. But, but you, you have travel ahead, and I am— exceptionally grateful that you took the time to come in here and and join me in Los Angeles while we're here. Um, We're going to shoot a live show with Henry Rollins coming up. And this is a, you know, kind of a makeshift episode of of Angry Americans, but we have the beer, which is great that we continue to enjoy. I get a six pack to the people around here. Tommy Vitor's dog was running around earlier. So you guys would love to see the outtakes of this, but we do have gifts. So Uh, mercy is going to mercy. You got that? Wonderful. Thank you. Um, Oh man, we got it's got three phases. Okay, so I'll give you I'll give you the 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 less sexy stuff first. But All right. If you open that up, you got um, some merchandise from Angry Americans, Beautiful. made by the veterans of Oscar Mike. Not quite Cleveland, but they're in Chicago. Oh, and so you can Beautiful. wear those anywhere you like. It's so a large. Thankfully, I've lost weight. We can change the sizes. We can get. We don't have any Cleveland Browns colors, but that's <laughs> thankfully some of the red and black. I hope you enjoy that. And then this is, you know, another Ooh. part of our every show. Easter time. Easter's coming again, so now Peeps is coming back around. But this is a question we ask of all our guests. You have three colors in there, Jamil. Yes, I think you do. Yeah, you I got. Uh, I got pink. I got yellow, and I have blue. Right. So, which color would you select, and why? Oh, uh, blue. Blue. I favor blue. Blue is one of my favorite colors. Just because you love it? And it yeah. was your car? You had the blue car? I had the blue car. Uh, yeah, blue. I, I mean, I, it's not, purple is my favorite color, period. It's, it's definitely tops. Um, I mean, pink would probably be this, sec, this, this, 
But I mean, if, if this is strawberry, if this pink means this is strawberry, then I would go. With I that. think they all pretty much taste the same. Okay, but there is. This I'm is not a break, big breaking guy. news for folks who listen to the show. There is jalapeno flavored Peeps, which is either wonderful or disgusting. Probably more the latter. But there are new flavors of Peeps that are being rolled out. We may have to do a special show on this. And you know what else is kind of fucked up? What's that? Peeps is not a sponsor of this show. Like I don't think anybody does more to promote Peeps in America than me. And this show, right? So um, we just do this I because mean, it's such a it's such an American thing. We started around Easter; it's just gone all the way. Everybody answers the question, and now it's a thing. So, I mean, but, Peeps is definitely like an Easter thing. Like it's like solid Easter, right? For me. Yeah, yeah. Well, now it's coming back around. All right, and, and also solid is uh, giving you an American whiskey. So oh, this yes. was selected especially for you, um, and it is. I want you to check that out. Oh, this is right. This yeah. is this is a home run. Single malt. Oh, love it. Okay, and Love it's it. and it's made in Texas, I believe. But you know, the part of it, it's it's Balcones. It's a Texas single malt. Uh, it is a reserve bottle. It's really cool, and it's you know, part of it is independent character. Mm. And I think that you've been. It's also got a hammer on the front of it and a star <laughs> and some other cool shit that, like you know, you you I know are a comic book fan also. Yes, sir. So it's kind of got some like awesome superpower related points to it. Yeah. But um, you've been out there, you know, banging away. You've been out there making an impact from a really independent viewpoint. You have been bringing that information. And I think you've been really courageous, man. Like, as a friend, I've known you for a long time now. Yeah. And, you know, as an activist, like, it's hard to navigate being an activist and an advocate in the media. I think you've done it really well. Thank like, you. You know, you've advocated for so many communities, people, issues that don't have a voice. Yeah. You've been that voice for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that there are going to be folks that look up to you in the same way you did to Sable and Maddow and others. They're coming. Yeah. And you've really, I think, cracked the seal for many of those important voices that are coming in into media. And, dude, the journey from from where you started to now, you know, you handed <laughs> me your card and you're, you're a Rolling Stone. That's got to be pretty fucking cool to hand somebody a Rolling Stone card. I mean, it, it, it has not gotten old. Yeah. <laughs> but I but I appreciate you. And, yeah. uh, and and I'm so grateful that you came here at this moment in time to have a discussion with us. Thank you, brother. Uh, and for joining us on Angry Americans. Well, uh, let me say also, man, it is, uh, it is also wonderful to see all the things that you're doing in the world. Uh, you know, keep your head high, man. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Jameel Smith, live from Crooked Media's really nice headquarters with leather couches and dogs. and we, They didn't have beer, so we brought the beer. But live from Crooked Media headquarters in Los Angeles is Angry Americans with the great and powerful Jameel Smith. Get yourself some good tacos while you're here. Yes. <laughs> Even when you're in a place where the sun always shines, a place where the beach is nearby, a place where Mickey Mouse isn't far away, there's still plenty of reason to be angry. But there's always a way to make an impact. It's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. Live from Hollywood, it's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. All right. Every show, I offer a way to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action, a positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans, an action that channels your energy, makes you feel good and makes a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes, integrity, information, impact, 
and inspiration. Feels like I'm out on the run. No looking back, looking forward. So far ahead. Hollywood is a place that often picks the stories of heroes and elevates them for the masses. That's what happened with the legendary Tuskegee Airmen in the 2012 film Red Tails, starring Terrence Howard and Cuba Gooding Jr. The tagline of the film was Courage Knows No Color. But like with any other story, a Hollywood film can never truly do it justice. And that's certainly true of the Tuskegee Airmen. And the real heroes, the one that Renee Zellweger talked about, are even more amazing than the characters in any movie. And one of those examples is 100-year-old Tuskegee Airman and Brigadier General Charles McGee. My advice to the youth is in four Ps. Perceive, prepare, perform, persevere. Perceive, dream your dreams, but find out what you like to do and what's important. Is then prepare, get a good education, learn to read, write, and speak well, and develop those talents that are meaningful for your future and also for our country. And perform, always excellence is a goal, doing your best in everything, and finally persevering. Don't let wayward circumstances be your excuse for not achieving. Mm. General McGee represents the best of this country, and he broke it down. When I say look for the helpers, it's leaders like General McGee. He flew a three-war total of 409 combat missions in World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam, and one of the highest combat totals and longest active duty careers by any Air Force pilot in history. For his service, he received the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Bronze Star Medal and many other honors. In 2007, as a member of the Tuskegee Airmen, McGee received the Congressional Gold Medal. And in 2011, he was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. And in February of 2020, he was promoted from Colonel to Brigadier General. And you may have seen him at the State of the Union. February is Black History Month. And the Tuskegee Airmen are just one important element of the long and often painful and incredibly proud history of black service members who've served in the American military since the founding of our country. In 1989, Another film about black soldiers was the talk of this town, Glory. Glory was directed by Edward Zwick, and it was about the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, the Union Army's second African-American regiment in the Civil War, and it starred Denzel Washington, who won the Oscar that year for Best Supporting Actor. But the real heroes like General McGee don't want movies, and they don't want awards. They don't want ribbons or shiny trophies. They want to do something bigger, more meaningful, and more lasting, and you can help. They fought courageously to defend our country. Now, they're fighting to educate the next generation. You can help by being a helper. Make every month Black History Month, and make every day Veterans Day. Support the Tuskegee Airmen Scholarship Foundation. You can find them online at the Tuskegee Airmen Scholarship Foundation. Google that, or go to TAISF.org. That's Tango Alpha India Sierra Foxtrot.org. The Tuskegee Airmen are one of the most recognized and decorated groups to ever serve in the Army Air Corps during World War II. And now they lead the fight for educational excellence by providing scholarships for first year students entering college. They stay active and engaged in one of today's most critical causes, bridging the gap between high school and post-secondary education. 
continuing the legacy of courage and commitment to issues of social justice and equality, the Tuskegee Airmen in 1978 created a fund to focus on providing scholarships for deserving students, the financially challenged, and the children of service members. These undergraduate scholarships are there to supplement the heavy financial burden of kids entering college and are offered to African Americans, Hispanics, Asians, other ethnic minorities, as well as other applicants without regard to race. The fund has now granted over 1,300 scholarships, totaling over $1.7 million to help needy students pay for college. Every year, the foundation presents $1,500 scholarship awards to 40 students who instill the ideals, leadership, and commitment as exemplified by the Tuskegee Airmen. And the foundation puts particular emphasis on students who will pursue careers in aviation, aerospace, and science technology which honors the living and the deceased members of Tuskegee Airmen who overcame tremendous racial barriers to achieve their dreams of becoming pilots, aviators, and air and ground support personnel. So support the Tuskegee Airmen Scholarship Foundation at TAISF.org, or you can Google it. The values of the organization are courage, compassion, commitment, perseverance, and discipline. Feels like a Those are the values of the Tuskegee Airmen and all of our country's best leaders, the true stars. Stars that will never get their name on the Walk of Fame here in Hollywood, but they'll have their names in the hearts of a generation of students that will go on to do great things and maybe one day even become president of the United States. That's what's possible if you aim high and shoot for the stars. If you got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry, be active. I love being out here. It's been a quick but very packed trip out to the West Coast for this episode and for the next episode. And there are a lot of people to thank, a lot of stars that shined, and some updates to share about what's coming up. But back east, we had a big one, and I want to give you an update. The huge New York Fire Department versus Chicago PD hockey game happened, and it was fantastic. They had bagpipes, they had families, they had great food, and they had everybody coming together. And we've been talking about stars, and the Chicago police team is actually called the Stars, and they faced off against the FDNY Fire so it was the stars versus the fire. And how awesome is that? Very awesome. And so was the game. I was honored to be there. Our friend Rob Sarah from episode two and episode 11, a 9-11 hero, led the whole thing. It was the master of ceremonies. And he even gave my son Ryder an opportunity to drop the first puck. It was inspiring. It was awesome. And it shows the power of what the angry Americans community can do. It all happened when a couple of you guys met on Twitter after talking about this show and debated pizza. That's what can happen if you guys get together and you organize around your righteous anger and turn it into positive impact. And we got a new event coming that Righteous Media and Angry Americans and I are going to be a part of. The New York Fire Department, the FDNY, and the New York Police Department have an annual clash, an epic clash, at Madison Square Garden on April 4th. Righteous Media will be a sponsor, and we will bring you coverage from that on this show and potentially much more. We're going to try to get some tickets. We'll have an event, and you can join us in New York, and we may have some contests for you to join us as well. So stay tuned for that. 
And we've got a live event, a reminder, with Henry Rollins. Just a few tickets are available. So if you hear this and you jump on the website right away, you might be able to snag a few. That's Friday, February 14th. It's Valentine's Day with me and Henry Rollins. If you can't make it, stay tuned because our next episode will have that conversation, which promises to be one of our most fascinating yet with the legend himself, Henry Rollins of Black Flag. It's at the Hotel Cafe in Hollywood. And if you can't join us, I hope you'll tune in and share. Many of you did join me on the radio. I want to thank you for that. I've been hosting Chris Cuomo's Let's Get After It show on Sirius XM channel 124. Many of you have been checking us out. If you're not a subscriber, you can get a free subscription or you can track the clips online or use the hashtag Let's Get After It. But I guest hosted for a few days uh, in advance of the debates and during the Trump press conference. So I thank you all for supporting. And I want to thank Chris Cuomo for passing the mic over to me. He joined us on this show back in episode 21. So my thanks to him for joining us and my thanks to the guests who joined me on the radio i had joe lockhart the former white house press secretary under clinton and the former head of communications at the nfl we talked about impeachment media strategy and the nfl in the super bowl and our friend rob sarah joined us fresh from the state of the union rob was inside of the state of the union had a very unique experience and had a big week closed it out with the hockey game I also want to send a shout out to my friend Ken Harbaugh out in Ohio. He is the host of a podcast called Burn the Boats, and he had me on his show this week. So check that out anywhere you get your podcast. Check out Burn the Boats. Ken Harbaugh is a former Navy pilot. He's a huge champion for veterans. He's a father of three, and he ran for Congress back in Ohio, 7th District in the 2018 election. He was also an outstanding nonprofit leader. He was the executive director of the Mission Continues uh, and the COO of Team Rubicon and later the president of Team Rubicon global but ken harbaugh is an awesome guy check out his podcast burn the boats and i hope he'll join us at some point in the future and big thanks to a couple of other folks who helped make this episode happen it was a big one we had to move the whole operation out to hollywood california which was a little challenging but everybody chipped in and we made it work uh, most of all thanks to jameel smith our guest this show he's amazing follow him on twitter at, at jameel smith and read him in rolling stone or at rollingstone.com and look for him on your tv I want to give a huge thanks to the team at Crooked Media. Tommy Vitor, John Favreau, John Lovett, Michael Martinez, Elijah Cohn, Matt DeGroote, and Adam Yukon-Har. Those guys were good enough to let us record the interview with Jameel Smith in the fancy Crooked Media headquarters. So appreciate you guys looking out for us, and thanks for having me on the show in the past. Those guys have been incredibly successful. It's really inspiring to see what they're doing in podcasting and new media, no matter what your politics, but they were very generous. Got to see their dogs, got to see behind the scenes of Crooked Media, and you can also see the video for that up on our website at angryamericans.us, and you can get a look inside the Crooked Media headquarters as well. Big thanks to Mighty Mercy Rich, who made the trip out west for me. She keeps all the trains moving on time at Righteous Media. Creative Chris Rosenthal. This guy deserves an Oscar. He holds it down in the rear and does all of our amazing video content that he pushes on social media and our YouTube page. So if you haven't checked that out, go to angryamericans.us, go to our YouTube page and subscribe and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're constantly pushing out some really cool videos, clips from this show and a lot more. But creative Chris Rosenthal is the mastermind behind it. And big thanks to Bill Schultz. He is our Martin Scorsese of podcast. He's the Bong John Ho of podcast 
podcast. He is the guy who makes this all happen. And I'm hugely grateful for you, Bill, uh, for doing the sound editing and everything else you do around this show. Big thanks to Oscar Mike, our awesome merch partners, Made in the USA merchandise by veterans outside of Chicago. Check out all the new designs at angryamericans.us now. I've been seeing your tweets and your social media using the hashtag angryamericans. If you're rocking that gear, send us a photo, post a photo, and let us know. And we will thank you. Speaking of which, it's time to thank a listener here from Hollywood. Every week, I want to thank a few angry Americans just for listening. And as always, I want to hear from you. And we have a hotline, 833-33-ANGRY. It's 833-33-ANGRY. Give us a call. Shout us out. Tell us what's on your mind. And I'll make you famous. I'll make you famous. Yep. So just leave me a voicemail. Tell me what's got you angry or what's got you inspired or what's going on in your community. And maybe we will use it in a future show. So do it. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Like these two folks who took the time to call in and had two very different perspectives. First up, Grace from Columbus. My name is Grace Nagel. I am from Columbus, Georgia, and I am angry that I received basically no health care coverage for a tooth that needs to be pulled, even though I have good health insurance and pay a premium. What's that all about? I'm not a fan. I hear you, Grace. Dental coverage is a real pain in the ass. Dental work is very expensive. I've had a lot of dental work myself, and insurance is basically non-existent, doesn't cover shit. So I hear you, and I'm frustrated, and I would love to hear the candidates talk about dental coverage. Then we're going to go down to Jimmy in Sedona, Arizona, Here's Jimmy. Hey, Paul. This is Jimmy. You got to hear what they all called me. The angry old white man. Yeah, the angry old white man. The Republican patriot. Yeah, I'm a service member, too, with an honorable discharge. Yeah, I love how Bella followed me up to Portland in 2008. I love how she used uh, everything to make her old man look like a great leader. Only she was using the stuff from my grandfather. Amazing. That's what I'm angry about. I'm angry about what they've done for the last 10 years and why Donald Trump had to run for president. I believe it was because of Bella. Uh, what else? All the things she took from me. All the work and innovations. To rebuild the economy at 29,000 gross domestic product. A 3% unemployment rate. I still haven't been paid. I still haven't got my credit. I want to yell to the world and tell the world the real truth. I think Donald Trump's a good man. Leave him in there. He's kind of an asshole, but at least he's doing the job and keeping the economy afloat. Otherwise, what else could you have? Think about it. If we have another recession, it'll be disastrous. Have a nice day. Bye. So Jimmy's a character. Donald Trump is an asshole, but the economy is good. Have a nice day. But Jimmy, thanks for calling in. Appreciate your perspective. Also want to shout out to Louise Seeley. She is in Idaho and she tweets at uh, Liberty Girl 65. She said, great podcast. I'm so happy to have found both Burn the Boats and Angry Americans and can't wait to share them. Thanks to you both. Thanks to you, Louise. We appreciate you tuning in from Idaho. And next up, my buddy John Roberts. Very cool guy in Somerset, Kentucky. He tweets at Hey Tweet John. He's a proud entrepreneur, a veteran, a husband and father, an occasional guest on a podcast called Greatest on Dirt. It's a baseball podcast that swings to the fences and isn't afraid to put one in your hip. Hosted by the Q Mac. 
If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. But my friend John is an Iraq vet. He was medically retired back in 2012. And he said he hears his voice in this podcast. And for a long time, he felt voiceless. He told me, I love my country enough to die for it. But I really worry it's being taken from us without even a single shot fired. And it's frustrating. And I hear you, man. And I try to be a voice for as many of you folks as I can. If you call, we can hear your voice as well. But John's an awesome guy. and We sent him a little Angry Americans care package. He was having a stressful couple days, but I was glad to see it gave him a bit of a boost. Peeps can do that. Peeps can definitely do that. Angry Americans merch can do that. But hey, John, just want to wish you and your wife all the best. Want to wish her a speedy recovery. And I hope that you run for Senate down in Kentucky against Rand Paul. I don't think he'd have a chance. And you get my vote and my support, dude. Absolutely. Uh, Speaking of which, big support to my buddy Delfino Sanchez down in Houston, Texas. This guy is awesome. Been meaning to give him a shout out. He runs the At Adeline Tree Services in Houston. They do stump grinding. You can find them at Adeline Tree. That's A-L-D-I-N-E Tree on Twitter. Now, they provide Houston tree services, Cypress Stump Grinding, and Memorial Texas Metro Area Limbs. It's a family-owned and operated full-package arbor company that's been around since 2001. It's AdelineTreeServices.com. Delfino does this Ask Delfino Tree Questions video. It's pretty cool. He's got his own little TV channel going on on YouTube. You can find him on YouTube. They're awesome. And he answers super useful questions like, how can I prepare my trees to survive and minimize damage from a tropical storm or hurricane? It's a great question. Or how do you safely climb a tree when you're working? Delfino answers that as well. So shout out to Delfino and to Nelly who hosts those videos with him. He's an inspiring dude who's making stuff happen. And he wrote to me and said, Paul, like yourself, I was disappointed that the Grammys didn't do more to feature the genius work of Neil Peart. I hear you, man. He said, thanks for remembering him and your podcast as one of the greatest drummers of all time. Rest in peace. I hear you, dude. Neil Peart is absolutely a genius. Uh, the drummer from Rush, the Grammys, totally missed it. But we will not. We'll recognize him and we'll recognize you. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for sending tweets. Thank you for your letters. Please keep the feedback coming. Yep, keep the feedback coming. Use the hashtag Angry Americans and sound off. I am grateful to all of you. Thank you. T-H-A-N-K-Y-O-U Thank you, thank you I like that one. It's happy and it's pleasant, like the California sunshine, or like my kids. And as always, thank you to my family and my amazing wife and my two boys. When I'm on the road like this, leaving them is very hard. I'm sure many of you can relate, but I want to thank them, especially thank the boys for being good while I'm gone. The baby is still teething. It seems to never end, but he's hanging in there. And the boys are rocking. And my son Ryder was awesome last weekend, dropping the puck at the hockey game. He's never done it before. I've never done it before. But he did an awesome job. We all walked onto the ice and did not bust our ass. So I want to give a big shout out to my son Ryder, to my baby River, and to my wife especially for being so amazing. Especially given that I'm on the road and missing Valentine's Day. I will make it up to you. I promise. But at a minimum, I hope we can get the boys to sleep early one day and maybe catch up on the last remaining Oscar movies we haven't seen or on Curb Your Enthusiasm. But I love you. Happy Valentine's Day. And thank you to my family, as always, for being the best Valentine's a guy could ask for. 
And you folks, you are the best Valentines I could ask for. So thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. Please keep our star rising. Keep us on the top of the charts on the political and news podcasts. Give us a five-star rating if you are on Apple Podcasts. Share it with your friends. Tell them to check this podcast out. It's 100% free. It's a pretty good deal. And if you're on an Apple device, leave a quick review, subscribe now, and we'll have it hot and fresh and waiting for you on Thursday. They've been coming a little later. It's been taking a little longer to produce them, but I hope you'll hang in there and they'll be just in time for your Thursday commute and definitely your Friday commute. You can save it, listen to it over the weekend or kick it off on Monday. And our archives are also there. So go back and binge them if you have some time. And keep the feedback coming on social media, of course. We're very active there, and I see you, I hear you, I'm with you. And go to angryamericans.us. We've got lots of video content, events coming up. You can get involved in the community. You can sign up for our newsletter, and you'll know about all the new events coming up. Stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. And we'll keep this movement growing week by week by week, and we'll continue to find ways to come together. No matter what's going on in the world, We will come together and add some positivity, seek common ground, and bring light in the face of the heat. Like this. The guy was sitting alone on a bench in a park, singing Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer by himself. And by the end, everybody in the park joined along to sing with him. Check this out. We got our hold on to what we got. It doesn't make a difference if we're making our own up. We got each other, and that's all I could do. We'll give it a shot. Oh, yeah, waiting. Oh, we're making up the bed. In the head, we're making up the bed. So it's okay to be angry, but know you're not alone. We're all a little angry. And that's because we're paying attention. And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact, just like the folks in that park, and just like so many here in Hollywood. Think of all the films and actors that have channeled their pain and the struggles of their lives and turned it into positive impact. That happens out here in Hollywood. It happens in towns big and small all across America. Because stars can come from anywhere, and they can shine from everywhere. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. And keep spreading the love, the California love, and keep it rocking. And stay vigilant, America. <laughs> <laughs>